Hello, boys and ghouls, and welcome to our 83rd podcast episode. Our 82nd episode came out 10 months previously. So, what have we been doing with our time? We saw some movies. We kept it spooky. And we watched the Shudder documentary, Horror Noir, colon, A History of Black Horror. Join us, please, as the boys and ghouls duo uses this 2019 documentary as their guide through decades of black actors and filmmakers in the horror genre. From the easily frightened sidekick characters of the haunting comedies from the first 50 years of cinema, to the zombie films, both before and after Zombies Ate Flesh. Creeping forward, we get to know better the bloodsuckers of the blaxploitation era. Then, we reflect on the horror of the 1990s with the first of the Candyman films. So, with Horror Noir, spelled with an E, as our framework, we venture forward into our long and long-awaited episode 83. We watched Horror Noir. You want to see something really scary? They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Zombies, exploding heads. Psychos, fanatics, murderers, nutcases. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampires? I know that one of you is a werewolf. Ain't nothing but dead folks. I want to kill you. The so undead. You ever talk to a corpse? Satan is our pal. It's boring. Throw the third switch! Not the third switch! Give my creation! Fat marshals. Fat oh. marshals. Well, look, now you're showing off. I mean, I, I was a lot closer to the microphone. Yes, and you also just have a than, more sonorous tone. Were. And if you want to lower your chair any, that's fine. No. Okay. No. How, don't tell me it's, the height at which my chair is comfortable. I'm just kidding. I may. I mean, it's, it's up at marshal height. Mm. You know. Mm-hmm. I'm not that much shorter than you are. Am I? How, how tall are you? Six two. How tall are you, cat? Five, eight and a half, five nine. All right, that's, that's not a huge difference. I would call it significant. Cat, <clears throat> um, it's been forever since we've recorded in person. Now that we're sitting here, I'm, I kind of wish we had looked up what date. Oh, the actual, actual day? But I, but I kind of don't want to know because I feel like it might depress me. Well, it was our Little Shop of Horrors episode. Really? Which dropped on Friday the 13th of March. Oh, my Which God. historians will basically agree is the day everything shut down. Yeah. Wow, holy shit. And no one really put those two things together. That, mm-hmm. like, our episode dropped, and then it was, don't come back to work tomorrow. We'll call you. They were probably too busy dealing with the global pandemic. To really pay attention. And yet, we, we've got a good amount of listens. Good. Yeah. Good. As someone who works in the podcast industry, yeah. I can tell you that it's, it should be, come as no surprise that when everything shut down, uh, listenership really dropped for a while. Because people were no longer commuting 
I mean, uh, look, a lot of people were. So I don't, I don't want to, I'm generalizing, but a lot of people no longer had that drive to work in which to listen, which is a, a lot of when I listened to podcasts. And, you know, so pe- people's, generally people's schedules were thrown off by everything. It picked back up again when people found new routines. Um, okay. they, you know, whatever that was, if that was like, well, now instead of commuting to work, I'm taking a an hour long walk every day or whatever, it rose back up, but it took, it I, took a bit. I know I was like, well, since I'm not seeing people, I'm going to hang with my new friends at Smartless. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. All right. Uh, well, we've been just itching to record in person, folks, and that's part of why it's been so long. Yeah. I kind of just want to take a tiny sidebar here and say that, yes, definitely part of the reason we wanted to wait to record again was to be in person, though we did record one episode during two, two, two. Yeah. Wow. Uh, my sense of time. Well, that serves my, my point, which is just, you know, I think I can't speak for you, but for me, part of the reason why it was rough going with trying to record was not really the like, we're apart. So it's harder. We figured that part out, but I, I just, I think I just had a, not a great time mentally, like as many of us have. And I, I just don't, I, I, I had, you know, off and on haven't been doing great. In fact, I just bring that up to say that if you're listening to this and you've had a really hard time at any point in time, this has always been true, but I know the last year and a half has been really weird. So I can speak for Marshall when I say both Marshall and I are thinking of you and hope that you're doing okay today and that if you're not, that tomorrow's better. Um, Yeah, so it was hard for us to kind of get get it done, but I feel like... We're getting back into the swing of things. Yeah, with a vengeance. And that, oh, yeah. that's part of why it took us extra long. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, first, after we last recorded, then we had, I'll call it a rock block of holidays. Mm-hmm. In which I didn't, you know, get to see my family. But I was basically um, endlessly watching specials during that time. What kind of, what, what specials? Like, well, first Halloween specials and then Christmas specials. Oh, of course, yes. And then with just a, with barely a blip in between. Yeah. To, uh try to get some warm fuzzies for the Thanksgiving season. But then there was the coming promise of a vaccine. So it was like, okay, well, just a little bit longer. Right. And then, you know, we had to actually get them, which feels like, at the time, I think we, I talked about it in terms of like, it, it felt like getting your driver's license, how like you started like knowing people your own age that were getting it. Yeah. And then, or if you're a girl um, or if you're someone with a uterus getting uh, your period. I, I Not dissimilar. That. Well, I know you can't yeah. speak to that, but I felt like everybody got their period before me, all my friends, and I just wanted to so badly. Anyway, same yeah. thing like a driver's license. Yeah. And you're sitting at home going, what makes them so awesome? <laughs> yeah. How <laughs> come they got vaccinated? And then we got it. And then the world opened up and immediately responsibilities and family yeah. things. Yeah. You got to see a bunch of family and I've I been did. working six days a I week. I traveled. You've been working a lot. Yeah. Because like, you know, those doors swung wide open. Anyways. Uh, so, but we've managed to see each other regardless, just not like been able to sit down and record. We met up as safely as we could. Um, we had you over to my back patio once or twice. We went on walks, mm-hmm. masked unmasked once we were vaccinated we went to the drive-in in separate cars we did do that we did yeah so it's been a really interesting year and a half or whatever since we since we were able to record in person but i feel like um you've helped me keep things kind of spooky and fun and you know just appreciating the world the way we try to do through horror and um just in general 
But I, well, I don't want to transition too much into our topic today because I did want to do some spooky gab if yeah. you have some. Well, I mean, you know how I recently saw Midsommar and I like, I think I like texted you while we I was watching it. We haven't talked about this. Well, the reason I was watching it is because a guy that I went to college with who I haven't seen in years and years and years found me, you know, over mm-hmm. social media. And then it was like, oh, nice. And then invited me to a Midsommar themed party in his backyard. Whoa. I have and, questions. And so Did I you thought, dress up? Did you wear a flower crown? No, but there were like flower crowns shirt. <laughs> available if you wanted them. <laughs> nice. Like at the door. Nice. And it was at night, though. And it's not like it started during the day. Mm-hmm. And then I, I could only show up late. Like, it started at night. Sure. So right there, it's not really like Midsommar, where it's daytime all the time. I went to see a matinee when I saw it at the theater, which was... Was that on purpose? No. But in retrospect, I'm like, huh, I came out and the sun was still shining, which did not help with the horror <laughs> in that instance. Oh but gosh, do you have pictures? Not much, because I couldn't see that much. I met some nice people, uh, one of whom uh, helped me with our topic today. But anyways, uh, so that's, I mean, it's a red light, wow. but he had one of the like flower covered, Yes. not quite so a cross like, it's because it's like a it, maypole kind of. Yeah. Like a maypole. Yeah. Actually, uh-huh. that's what he called it. He called it the maypole. Yeah. Oh, that's the, a video of it's it. It's got the two, that's beautiful. It's got the two circles and it's, yeah. <laughs> so I was about to leave and I was like, oh, let me take a picture of your maypole. And he goes, oh, well, hold on. And he like presses a button. And this, like, steam with oh red light God. behind it starts up. I respect this so hard. There you go. Very cool. An image never seen during the film because it's bright the entire film. And this was your first Ari Aster movie? Because you haven't seen Hereditary because I haven't shown it to you yet. Because but I want to show it to you. Uh, you made me promise not to see it until we yes, can see it together. right. So. That's right. Well, having seen Midsommar, are you... Oh, I, I'm extra um, curious as okay. to where... The mind behind that went previous to that, I guess I'm Uh saying. Okay. And as far as I can gather, Hereditary is set in a more conventional setting. Definitely. So I'd also like to see that. Because that, the the Midsommar is so weird, it might as well be the moon, you know? It is. Well, I think people say that Midsommar is his breakup movie and that Hereditary is his, like, grief movie or family movie one of those two yeah family i guess he tends to deal with extremely personal interpersonal family familial and interpersonal relationships how many weird words can i put together is it as Um, long as midsummer it's pretty long if i remember correctly okay because i I sat down i was just like i'll just knock this out and go to a barbecue yeah and then i'm like good night yeah like two and a half hours yeah it's a long movie i don't take this time might not be as long but um yeah okay I haven't really been doing anything super spooky lately except watching some spooky movies, but... Yes. Um, the shirt that you're wearing. What do you think about the shirt I'm wearing? It looks like skeletons having a lot of fun. What are they doing, though? Can you... Well, is there a theme you can identify? They're eating snacks. They're eating sweets. Mm-hmm. They're eating dessert. Okay. So I wanted to talk to you about... And when this um, and episode... Like, donuts a cookie a lollipop cotton yeah. candy ice cream so when this Sunday. episode comes out we'll post um a picture and link you guys to the shop but my friend kira did a bunch of drawings during covid during the pandemic yeah and she started making shirts with a lot of different designs on them and they're not all skeletons but the shirt that i'm wearing is skeletons enjoying different desserts and they're all very cute if i do say so i think these skeletons are very cute i don't know how you feel about it i mean look at their kooky faces Love them. Anyway, so the 
shop, if you search on Instagram for I Stepped In Shirt, you get it. I do. There are a lot of designs, not all of which, but a few of which include really, really cute skeletons. But all the designs are really cool. And anyway, um, the great thing about these shirts, besides the fact that they're really great quality and very cute designs, is that depending on the shirt, so whichever shirt you like, you click on it and you can tell which charity, but half of the proceeds go to either the American Cancer Society, the Los Angeles LGBT Center, or the Humane Society. So that just depends on the print. The shirt I'm wearing, skeletons eating dessert. Oh, depending on the shirt, depends where your money goes. Exactly. So this one is to the LGBT Center. Okay. Um, and anyway, I encourage, if you're listening, go check them out. You can get them in different colors. They actually now have crops. I know crop tops are big now, but they're really cute. I mean, the shirt I'm wearing, I just got mine in the mail today. It's buttery soft. And I think you'll find something that you like. They have kids' sizes, men's, women's. So check it out. I stepped in shirt and do some good and get a really cute shirt. Okay. When it get too hot for comfort and you can't get ice cream cones or take no sin to take off your skin and dance around in your bones when the lazy syncopation of the music softly moans then take no sin to take off your skin and dance around in your bones I'm ready to do all right green up in green land all right cat marshall you and i are the same race <laughs> okay we're both white race is a uh, a social construct but go on Sure, sure. Okay. Um, but we we do differ by gender. We do. Yeah, and about nine years between us. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to start us off with skeletons. Um, when you see, like, we'll just say like, like a cartoon representation of a skeleton, not an actual skeleton. Or maybe sort of like one in an old black and white film where the gag is then it starts talking. Mm-hmm. And then someone's like, "What? What? What?" Uh-huh. Or you know, it, it turns. Or its wait, head. like is it the it, it, like at the end of um, is it House on Haunted Hill where the skeleton comes after her? And yeah. She, yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm with you. When you picture that skeleton, uh, I'll start with with our difference. Yeah. Do you picture that it's a male skeleton? Always. But is it because it resembles the male symbol on the bathroom in that it has no breasts? The symbol in the bathroom, the female symbol in the bathroom or, or doesn't hair. necessarily always have breasts. They have a dress on. They have a dress, and it's sometimes a symbol indicating hair. Yeah, So sure. short hair or absence of hair, yeah. like a skeleton, yeah. would suggest a male. I would argue that the reason I see it as male is because, and I'm not even being glib, I, okay. this is, a, we live in a patriarchal society, and we are all, all of us, even women, are programmed to think of everything as being male. Oh, interesting. My opinion. I'm not, yeah, saying okay. I'm not saying that's the rule of law, but I think of a skeleton as being male, and I think that's because I, we default to males in our society. My opinion. In cartoons, and, and these are like the cartoons from like the 30s, mm-hmm. uh, but also on your shirt, yeah. uh, you will get the skeleton with a bow. Yeah, she's wearing a bow. She's Which is cute. all that really separates Mickey Mouse from Minnie Mouse. Right, that's true. Is a bow, so that seems to be like right. the language that says... This skeleton right. <laughs> was once a woman. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay, now, when you see skeletons in the context I've just described, what race do you think they are? Right, that's a great question. Or that, were. That doesn't cross my mind. Really? Okay. I don't think so. I don't know. I, I, I've never thought about it. You're Honestly, you're blowing my mind. Do you think of a certain... I mean... 
Research. I, I do also go male because I've had like two fake skeletons and I've called them both like Mr. Bones. And why do you call them Mr. Bones? Why not Mrs. Bones? It's a, we live in a patriarchal society. Okay. Uh, well, I know that like you have a skeleton named Javier. <laughs> so yeah. especially living in Los Angeles, I mean, it didn't re- reach me much before, but the notion of the like the sugar skull, mm. day of the dead type of things, mm-hmm. like every other decorative skull I see has sort of a day of the dead motif. Yeah going yeah so there's that and i'm just dancing around because uh do i say latinx or latinx I, I, latinx yeah i think that's okay i, I keep out that's... the teen latinx i think you could say i don't know i've always said latinx i just see it spelled yeah okay right. well i this is a great i'm glad we're stumbling a little because i think that that's a great i think that as long as we're asking questions and wanting to get it right yeah. then we're doing the right thing but i've always thought i think it's latinx but okay. I, i've had that experience many times of only ever having read something and not said it out loud. <laughs> yeah. Also, you say the word X and it, it's not like a Y sound like an mm-hmm. X sometimes is. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you, you have, have Javier. We've discussed on this show how a lot of skeletons for medical use and then for show business were actually from India. Mm. And yet when a, a skeleton is represented on film and television, it never has an Indian accent. Why would it? Really, that's right. it's kind of a, that's that kind of a deep cut trivia. That would be a level trivia. of accuracy that I don't think most humans are capable of for historical context. I, in fact, forgot that factoid that you're telling me, but I remember yeah. now. And so often skeletons, and then you can also say, you know, as an extension of that horror, so much of it is European and Gothic. Yes. In that yes. the stories they, they would get it from would be like Dracula mm-hmm. in Romania. Or Frankenstein, which I think was in Switzerland originally, mm-hmm. at least Bavarian kind of horror. And the old castles where these skeletons dwell, or the old Victorian haunted houses would most often be associated mm-hmm. with white people. So you think like white people have white skeletons, mm-hmm. you know, in their dungeons, yeah. what have you. Yeah. Or in their cemeteries where they hop out and play their ribs like xylophones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. Interesting. I, I mean, I've... Yeah, this is why this is why I love you, Marshall. I, I just want to show uh, our, our listener just where our brains were. Well, you're taking my brain to to places that it, it has never gone before, which is why I keep you around. Um, it's just really interesting. And I mean, if I'm really pressing myself to think about whether I... I certainly would never default to thinking of a skeleton. If I saw a skeleton, I probably wouldn't default to thinking, oh, oh that like, must like a have real been one. A, Right. Like a for well, real skeleton. Or, or in movies. Like, I'm trying to take okay. what the thought experiment that you're throwing at me, which is, would you assume that the skeleton was, like, Caucasian or whatever? And I sort of think, like, I guess I wouldn't default to thinking that the skeleton had been a black person or a Chinese person or that, and I wouldn't have thought about it at all, which I think probably says something about what I'm defaulting to. I'm assuming I pr- I'd probably default to thinking that the skeleton is a person who looked like me. Okay. Because not only do we live in a patriarchal society, but we live in a uh, society with structural racism. Mm. Are you listening to Boys and Ghouls, hosted by two lightly racist, we endearing all, hosts? We all are, and if you don't admit it, if you say you're not, and if you say you don't see color, you're part of the problem. Okay. So, just sort of circling yeah. our topic for today, which, how would you sum up our topic for today? What did you say when you approached me in June? Of last year, not even this year. Yeah, I thought about this. Okay. So we started talking about this topic around June of last year. Uh Summer of 2020, we were 
experiencing the greatest civil rights movement of our lifetimes. Would you agree? Sure. Hopefully there isn't need for another. There probably will be. Yes. But we were in real time experiencing a social reaction to, you know, our... This is post-George Floyd. Post the death of George Floyd. So... I said to you, like, let's, you know... We were taking one of our walks. Yeah, and I just, I think we just sort of came to... uh, Did I bring it up to you? Was it it my idea? Oh, yeah. I put it off. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, right. I said, uh, well, go on. Yeah, so anyway, I just said, we we should talk about black horror. And who are we to talk about black horror? But we should talk about it. We don't cover it enough. We should talk about, you know... I've been describing as black people in horror. Right, right. Well... That's something we can get into because I think there's a difference between and black people in horror and then also black horror, meaning horror uh, that is created with black themes, with ideally by black people. Yes, with black people in them, but also about blacks telling black stories. Sure. So I think there is a difference between those two things because obviously representation in movies doesn't necessarily mean it's good representation. We'll get into that. Sure. But yeah, I brought it up and I said, let's do that. And I said, let's do Halloween next. Mm-hmm. And then let's wait until after the election, because however it comes out, it'll make a difference. There will just be like a barometric shift in the air. And I think the other thing you said to me was that you also would rather not, and I really loved that you came at it this way, you'd rather not sort of like ride the heels of this thing and do it because it's cool in the moment. You were like, let's just, and not just cool, but you know what I mean, like topical. And you were like, let's take our time and let's do this right it's a little bit of an overwhelming topic. And you were like, I don't want to do it just because it's this. Because it's in, in right now. And it's the thing everyone's doing and black squares on Instagram and all the things. You were like, let's just do it when it makes sense. Which I love. That's great. Yeah, good for me. Yeah. I think I was just, uh, I was just um, trying to get some time out of this. <laughs> so I could do what I thought was a good job. Yeah. And eventually we decided to frame it in the documentary horror noir. Mm-hmm. Every time I tried to approach the topic, I'd come back to the horror noir documentary, which came out on Shutter in 2018. I think it was 2018. Yeah. It was post Get Out. And it was. in fact, I think part of the rising wave of discussion that occurred right after Get Out came out in 2017. Yes. 2017? Yeah. And we decided to watch it and let the topics it brought up and the tact it took sort of guide us into what we explored And in a time when the best thing to do is listen, you and I are instead going to talk for like over an hour. Right. Well, I would argue that we did a lot of listening in preparation for this podcast. Months worth. And I, yeah. And I think that it's important. This isn't necessarily about, I don't know, maybe I'm justifying it, but I do think it's important just to listen. But I also think that it needs to become a habit of ours going forward to make an active effort to represent more filmmakers than the ones that just kind of bubble up to the surface. And I think this is a good exercise in digging and learning and all of those things as we all should do. And horror noir is just a friggin' fantastic documentary and a great, a great jumping off point to talk about a a whole lot of great movies and actors. So that's what we're going to do today. Okay. First. (laughs) Yeah. First. Okay. Well, One overarching thing I did want to say is that kind of to the point of you and I being two white people, these, these conversations about all the things we're going to talk about 
stereotypes of black people in horror movies, underrepresentation, all the topics that were brought up by Get Out, all, every, everything. These, all these conversations were happening for years and years and years before you and I became aware of them, I think. I mean, there sure. was a certain point in time when the word woke became a thing. People were like, oh, now we're all starting to come online and understand more about what's going on in the world. And so... I we, think every generation gets their increase of understanding. Totally. Which is just so they have to go back and relearn something. And ours just has a name. Mm-hmm. And this time... It's being We're called a very woke. self-aware because the, generation. The new information that's hardest to swallow is the ones that goes against what you previously believed. Right. And I, I guess I just say that to say that we understand we're not bringing up anything novel here as okay. far as the types of conversations that need to be had about black people in horror and black horror creators and all of that stuff. We understand we're not, you know, reinventing the wheel or coming up with anything necessarily new. This is just a great way, I think, for us in our little corner of the internet to have a conversation. I went to the library when this was really... Well, when the libraries reopened. I was going to say. And uh, I got out a book from 1972 from a black author. And... um, Whoa. Yeah, I can't even say the name of it. Yeah. On on air. Like, I think even in 72... It was... So, like, 72? Cool. It was supposed to be provocative and... And this is even like a little bit bef- like black exploitation was just getting going. So it was only just a look back at blacks in cinema, like from, you know, the dawn of cinema yeah. up to present. Again, which, this is exactly the point I was making, which is like, it's really, it makes me feel like a terrible person. It's like this book, which contains so much important criticism about black representation in film and television and this came out in 1972, like decades ago. And yet there's still people today denying that, like, that there's, there's problem. any problem. Sure. <laughs> anyway. The horror noir documentary started with Birth of a Nation and it moved itself forward. And actually the, the first part that I really concentrated on that I've drug you into. Mm-hmm. Dragged? I've dragged you into. Correct. They only touch on briefly in just sort of like a, oh, wasn't this a shame kind of era, but that I really wanted to look at, which is the fearful black stereotype. Yeah. Often exhibited in a black sidekick. There would rarely be like the black star of a film, and if there was, that would just be like one of those films that's got an all black cast. Mm-hmm. And would just be distributed, I think, in like black regions of the country. So they never got really wide distribution. Right. I did watch one of those. You did? Yeah. Um, Lucky Ghost. Because I had the word ghost in the title. And I'll start there just for a quick moment. Who's in there? Who's in there? Ain't nobody in there but us chickens. <laughs> it was one of the many uh, Mantan Moreland movies I watched. And in it, him and another guy uh, steal a chicken. And I'm just like, oh boy, Mm. it's one of these. Mm -hmm. And then the farmer who comes out and is like, hey, who's in my chicken house? Was a black farmer. And I'm just like, I've been watching lots of movies for this and for my entire life. And in this period, which was just the 1940s, Mm. just to see a black farmer on the screen... You know, I was like, I don't think I've seen that very right, like much. He's, he's in charge of his own land. He's, yeah. Right? He's not yeah. on someone else's land working someone else's land. Yeah, he's, as far as I could tell. Right. And he's just, you know, chasing people out of his chicken coop. 
And it's not until I think you see something do you realize that you haven't seen it before. Right. You know, it feels so obvious. So, oh, um, in, in the beginning of cinema, the early trope of the uh, the frightened like black sidekick. Mm-hmm. You and I, on one of our times when we could get together, went out to the uh, local cemetery, mm-hmm. Burbank's Valhalla, yeah. like we've done a few times. And we had already started researching for this podcast, and I took you by two headstones, one for Willie Best and one for Mantan Moreland. Mm-hmm. And... In that book I, I just showed you, they're both pretty well featured. Not just for, you know, they were in more than just like scary movies or like horror comedies, really. None of these were straight up horror films, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but both of them were comedic sidekicks, mostly. Yeah. I don't know if this will help you to put it here or maybe at the top of our mm-hmm. sidekick thing, but I did sort of find like a sort of good descriptor for that. Oh, please. So I read an article by Nadia Latif. You can Google this. It's called Unmasking Hollywood Horror's Racial Stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And when you watch horror noir, they kind of break down a list of like main types of stereotypes. You have the first to die, the magical Negro, the spiritual guide, the sacrificial Negro. These are like kind of well-known sure. categories. And then you have this frightened sidekick. And Nadia Latif in her article says, The black people of horror films are pale imitations of real characters. Sidekicks devoid of wants and needs serving the white protagonists by feeding off their misery and paying in self-sacrifice. That doesn't always happen, especially in horror well, comedies, but... I think the best of them are the ones who manage to get furthest away in degrees mm-hmm. from that description mm-hmm. as they increased in agency. Right. Because I, I, I couldn't get through much of it. I went back and I watched a little bit of a step and fetch it, which I used to think was a description when you said that to me, I thought it was as well. I did not realize that was a name. Was it a stage name? Oh, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a yeah. real name. Yeah. But, I mean, just when I'd hear it, I'd hear someone refer to a step and fetch it character. I never knew there was a guy. You thought it was like a category. A category. Uh-huh, yeah, which it. it kind of is now. Yeah. I didn't realize there was a guy who went around and identified as. It's so demoralizing. I mean, like, yeah. I don't blame him for making his money. Like, oh, and he, that's that's the kind of thing where I think I like that you're trying to. He's got a star on the Walk of Fame. He does. Yeah. I like that you're bringing us into a bigger discussion of this frightened sidekick stereotype because although like these are not multi-dimensional characters most of the time, like this is what they had to play. These were the opportunities available to them. And I like that we're going to talk about like what a great job they did at their job, you know? Don't tell me a man of your intelligence believes in ghosts. He gives me the heebie-jeebies. I'd seen like, you know, a few of these kind of things over the years. And I just... I never thought that actual people thought that black people were so given to fear of ghosts mm-hmm. um, and superstition. Superstition. That, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Until pretty recently, I read this book. He's got books, folks. He's got lots of books. Okay. So this is yeah. called Tinseltown. Tinseltown. Okay, so I'm starting us off with some true crime. Um, there was a murder of a silent era film director. Mm. That caused great scandal and years worth of headlines. It's mostly forgotten today, but if you want to learn all about it, there's a book called Tinseltown. By William J. Mann. Uh, 
1922, this guy, William Desmond Taylor, was found shot in his home. Oh, I've heard that name. I feel like maybe you must remember this did some stuff. One of the great unsolved mysteries. Mm -hmm. Uh, This book claims to have cracked it. Mm -hmm. Or there was a real uh, late-in-the-game confession, a literal deathbed confession, that they say, well, it it was more than likely this. But well before they get to that, the... The man who found the body was Henry Peavy. Uh, Henry Peavy was his valet, mm. William Desmond Taylor's or valet. as in which movie? One of the zombie movies. Maybe it was, yeah, King of the Zombies. Mantan Moreland's character is a valet, but they call mm-hmm. him their valet. Yeah, they, okay. They pronounce it valet. <laughs> I wrote that down just because I thought it was so weird. So valet Henry Peavy <laughs> was a black man, a young guy. He was also flamboyant and gay. Oh, my. And he found the body and, like, came outside and started screaming. Oh, no. And then people started coming. I think he did it. Well, that's a side point. In the book, to my memory, and then I tried Googling it, I don't think he was ever a suspect. Oh, because they were like, well, he was so scared. Wait. I think I think because he was a swish. Oh. You know? And, okay. And, and I think, well, that goes to some, you know, when we're in this era of representation, they would, emasculated comes right, up a right, lot. Right, 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 yeah. So, so they would think he, there was no way he was capable of... What could be more like emasculated than the flamboyant Henry Peavy? I am so interested by this because when you are living in... When you exist in a world and in a, a society in America where gay men are emasculated, but black men are vilified for being excessively violent and angry and strong and dangerous, how... I guess gay in the game of rock, paper, scissors for discrimination, like gay beats black. It, I guess it got far, him off the hook. Right. Or, oh or, or maybe goodness. it was just thought that like, if he did it, why would he be here screaming for help? Uh huh. Right. Or something. Okay. So it, it doesn't stop there. Oh boy. <laughs> um, for a long time, he was, cons- they, not just the finding of the body, but because he was a regular member of the household. They think he must have seen something or heard something, and he must know who pulled mm. the trigger on Mr. Desmond Taylor, so all we got to do is shake it out of him. Mm. So some newspaper men came into town, told him that they were police officers, and uh, took him like to their office and like, grilled him. Promised newspaper them... men, not police officers. No, no, no. These The police officers were kind of done by now, but yeah. the newsmen were like, we're going to get it out of this Henry Peavy. So after a while of like saying they were cops and interrogating them illegally, mm-hmm. they said, all right, we're going to take a little ride. So they went to uh, what is now the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, where Desmond Taylor was buried. And then one of them said, I got an idea and dressed like a ghost. No. These were adults who felt they could like scare a confession out of... And do you think in large part they thought it's because he's black? Yeah, 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 because he's black. people are superstitious. It's in the encyclopedia. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah, so... What <laughs> happened? He started to beat up the ghost. Nice. Yeah. Oh, this poor guy. It says here the reporters ran from PV. He filed complaints. Both men hopped the train back to Chicago. It's kind of hard to prosecute across state lines back then. And the ghost, the guy who dressed up in a sheet and who was like, I am the ghost of William Desmond Taylor. Say who killed me, Henry. Um, that's not a quote. That's just <laughs> what I assume he said. Uh-huh. He was a reporter named Al Weinshank, and he was killed in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Whoa, holy, so free holies. He got his. What? Yeah. Heck of a story. Oh, my goodness. But among the layers 
of that bit of Hollywood true crime is just the notion that these otherwise seemingly intelligent people, you know, you can't be a mental slouch and be a reporter of any longevity, right. I'd say. We're just like, hey, it's practically science. Black people are afraid of ghosts. Right. Let's, you know. I'm just glad that he didn't get, like, put in prison for hitting some white men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, <laughs> there's a silver lining. But that is such an illustrative example of that stereotype. Yeah. Wow. So there you go. So from that same period, the first movie that you and I both watched is Haunted Spooks. Yes, I did watch this. It's not that long. Nope. It's not long. And it's got some pretty iconic moments in it. And it's well-placed within the history of silent actor Harold Lloyd. It's a Harold Lloyd movie. And it gets held up a lot as an example. If you need an image of uh, frightened black people's stereotype being exploited in film, mm-hmm. you can pull one from this. But I think you I think you warned me when you sent it. You were like, this one... Well, no more than some others. But also, I think people lean on this movie for something that was done a lot because this movie is more widely available. Mm. People have taken the time to clean up and digitize Harold Lloyd films where there's plenty of other probably worse movies that never got that kind of treatment and aren't as readily available to put in your documentary. Yeah, that's fair. Let's say. But it's a pretty big offender. I mean, the the note I wrote is sometimes when you watch older things, you just have to swallow some bitter pills. I mean, if you're going to make it through a movie like this... So, Haunted Spooks, this is also the movie where partway during production, Harold Lloyd accidentally blew off a couple of his fingers during a publicity <whistles> moment. I would say stunt, but that makes it sound planned. I think it was supposed to be a prop bomb that turned out to be more real than that. And He was hospitalized for a while and then came back and finished the film uh, noticeably thinner. Mm. But the plot's pretty simple. Boy meets girl. Girl needs to be married in order to uh, claim her inheritance. They have to live in this southern manor in order to get the inheritance it's like her uncle's place or something well her uncle is um scheming against her it's the old like if you don't get it i get it that's right story some of these bleed together from yeah. when i watch them uh-huh. so he's got the big idea of scaring them off by that's addressing right. his ghosts and sort of collateral damage to that is the all-black staff also gets quite frightened yeah and in the end the ghosts are found out to be just people and you know mm-hmm. like you do um Two of the actors, one, there was the butler, a large man. So um, it's kind of rough watching such a big guy be so frightened Mm. of uh, ghosts. Mm -hmm. But that actor was named Washington Blue. That's a cool name. And he was a ball player for the Negro Leagues. And later his son broke the college football color barrier for USC. Whoa. And in between time, he was a working actor. And he was also in a movie called Haunted Gold. Haunted Gold is known because it's an early John Wayne movie. Oh, wow. Where, same deal, there's gold, there's a ghost town, people are trying to scare people off the ghost town. It's not straight up horror. It did come out a year after Dracula. So there's bats and shadows and, you know, someone pretending to be a phantom to scare people away from the gold. And Washington Blue, or, I'm sorry, Blue Washington. Oh, And okay. Blue Washington is also in that. He was the butler in Haunted Spooks. Got it. Blue Washington, a baseball player yeah. and an actor. 
And so like he's it. one of those examples of the sidekick with really no agency. Um, if he captures the bad guys, it's kind of an accident. I wrote down he throws his own gun in a rain barrel at one point. My face red. <laughs> also, in Haunted Spooks, you might remember one of the big uh, gags at the end. There's a little kid running around. Mm-hmm. And at the end, like, he's wearing an adult's pair of pants. Yes. But it's up over his head. Yes. And so he's walking and it looks like a ghost. Yes. And then he pulls the pants down and he's like, it's just me. Yeah. Adorable. Well, that actor went on also to be in sound pictures. Uh, Haunted Spooks was a silent film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ernest Sunshine Sammy Morrison. Okay. And he became one of the East Side Kids. They were in a series of films. Oh, okay. Uh, an extension of the Bowery Boys or the Dead End Kids. And they were just a, I'm not familiar, they were just like a gaggle of kids? Of like teens that were kind of up to no good. Oh. They were always a... Were they a multi-ethnic group of kids? Well, one guy. I mean, they, they, it, was, it, was like, so they it was all had, like... They had like a token? Was it mostly yeah. white people? Okay. It was most, well, I think it. it was like Irish-Italian. Okay. And, and then their one black friend. Okay. And they would get into all sorts of mischief. But in this one, they did like a haunted house thing. So they were in a haunted house, and the frightening man in the haunted house that they're all afraid of is played by Bela Lugosi. <laughs> and that's why this movie gets some attention. It says here that in the night he prowls about seeking new victims, and in the daytime he sleeps in a coffin. Well, let's wait till daytime. And I guess I'll, I'll say now, one of the things I noticed, and you brought up a film that I hadn't seen before, uh, Topper Returns. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I've never seen it, but I guarantee that the black sidekick character has the last gag of the movie. Mm-hmm. And that is basically a trope. Mm-hmm. Whatever's happening, they'll turn the camera over to Blue Washington, Mantan Moreland, Step and Fetch It, Willie Eddie Anderson, Willie Best. Uh-huh. And he'll get some kind of like final gag yeah. in. And they'll just be like, ha ha ha. Oh, Eddie. Yeah. And um, I was already onto it by the time I'd watched uh, Spooks Run Wild. Hold your breath and save your laughs when Bella Lugosi, that master of horror, meets those gloom-busting Eastside kids, even a respectable ghost gets a nervous breakdown. And I think because of the stereotype of the, you know, frightened black kid, oh, he was 29, but he was playing a teenager, I think he got a few more scenes, and a few more scenes with Bela Lugosi than he would have otherwise. And I ain't scared now. Some folks might be, but I ain't. And also that's, you know, sidekicks in westerns were usually just like white guys, but that were just shorter than the hero. You know what I mean? They were just like, ah, pickles. But I think because they were doing a scarier, they haunted gold, they were like, well, we're going to need a black guy. Right. Because everybody knows. Because everybody knows, yeah. If you've got something scary, that's your barometer. Right. Right this way, gentlemen. Uh, you first. Me? Uh-huh. Oh, me. Interestingly, yeah. I think, too, like, I know it was played for comedic effect and everything, but it seems like this frightened sidekick character, at the very least, like, I guess the joke is they're afraid, and it's silly that they're afraid because you shouldn't be afraid because ghosts aren't real, or something like that, except that, like, or, for or my just money... comic relief... Right, but like for my money, it's like they're the smart ones. They're like, you crazy white people, why are you still here? And I feel like at least that evolved a little later on. Like, of course, I realized now, which I didn't at the time, that when I'm watching Scream 2 mm-hmm. and Gail Weathers' camera guy is like, 
I didn't read your book before, but I'm reading it now, and your last cameraman got murdered. I'm getting the fuck out of here. Like, he at least, sure. that stereotype becomes self-referential later in films, and a little meta and smarter, where it's like, I'm not an idiot. Y'all are idiots. I'm getting out of here. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, that well that's an increased agency. Exactly. I use that word a lot more than I normally do. But you go back, 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 and they were just bound by the fact that they were domestics, and whatever their boss wanted to do, yeah, they just had to do. What are they going to do? Like, go get Quit? on a plane or drive away? and Right. What are you going to do? Quit? Yeah, so just like, go down this dark hallway. I don't know. I guess I will. Yeah. And so as these parts improved, I'd say what improved them as time went on was more agency for the character. Um, Willie Best, who's uh, gravely visited, was in Ghost Breakers mm -hmm. with Bob Hope. And so, listen, going up against prime Bob Hope, who was known for improvisation, that's no easy job. And so Willie Best just holding his own. And how do you be comic relief to Bob Hope? Right. Although I guess sometimes he was just more of a sounding board. And what year but was Ghostbreakers? Ghostbreakers was 1940. Okay. That's the night that Paula inherits a ghostly ancient castle off the ghost, I mean the coast of Cuba. The place is filled with mummies and spooks that walk at midnight. There are murders and death warnings planned to frighten Paula and me, but we ain't frightened. And they'd go on a, a bit of a, an adventure to Cuba where um, there's like a haunted castle that a girl's inherited yeah. and, you know, it's supposed to be haunted. It's and... always inheritance in these movies. Yeah. That's how you get like a regular person into a spooky place. Kind of like um, House on Haunted Hill. Exactly. Somebody paying you. Get that cash. <laughs> now, wait a minute, Larry. If you're doing this on my... Oh, not at all. No, Alex and I want to investigate Black Island and get acquainted with the spooks. Now, you speak for yourself, both. So I won't have no parts in those spooks. Well, you're not afraid of meeting a few spooks, are you? I'll meet them when I have to, but there ain't no sense in teasing them. The part that I actually laughed out loud at, and Willie Best has some good scenes, because there's a while that Bob Hope gets stuck in a steamer trunk, which is how they wind up in Cuba in the first place. And Willie Best has to, like, go looking for him in, in the various trunks. So for a while, he's the guy on screen, because Bob Hope's been, like, tucked away. And there's a funny bit. You're giggling. I am because it's like all the cops, <laughs> someone's been murdered in a hotel and all these cops, these big Irish cops are all gathered around being like, all right, we're going to search room to room and, and leave no stone unturned. They're like, right. And they all leave. And the only person left in the hall is Willie Best, just like pressing himself against the wall, trying not to be noticed. And thereby they just completely dismiss him, <laughs> which is also problematic in that he was also dismissed right. as a person. All right, boys, go through every room. So, unlike where you, you might think, like, oh, did they just blame the black guy? No. They, he just didn't even matter. They literally didn't see they him. They don't see him. A whole room full of cops, and they all just whiz right by him. Wow. And an interesting point, because it's like your understanding of that, in large part, it depends upon your understanding as a human, whether that is with the context from 2021 watching that looking back at a different time or the context of, at least at the time, people knowing black people didn't matter, quote unquote. And it was also just a joke of like, they were too of, busy. Of dumb luck. Right. Totally. But I also think that you can't discount the layers that you were also bringing up. I think those I are think very so. real. Yeah. yeah. Hey, boss, you ain't going upstairs, are you? Where does ghost in? Listen, you stay there. And if a couple of fellas come running down the stairs in a few minutes, let the first one go. 
That'll be me. If somebody passes you, that'll be me. Um, that was Willie Best, uh, sort of bridging the gap between Step and Fetch It and Mantan Moreland, um, who was, he was a contemporary of, really. Because Willie Best, only six times out of a, a long career, but still he started as Sleeping Eat. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That was his, his, like, his stage name. I did not know that there were multiple stage names like that. Buried just a few yards away from comedian Oliver Hardy. You and I visited many cemeteries in our time, but at your birthday day about town for you this year, we went to a segregated cemetery for Chinese people in Los Angeles. But then also we visited the, oh yeah, Evergreen Cemetery, where there is actually a, a section, multiple sections that are segregated. Like they're in the same cemetery. Really? Cause that's, cause. Or no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I guess what I'm trying to say is there are many cemeteries that didn't allow um, the races to mix, right? In death, and that's that's why that Chinese cemetery we visited existed. Yeah, Evergreen Cemetery specifically was known as like the first cemetery in Los Angeles to not segregate in that way. Is I think what I was trying to say. And good on them. Yeah. And while we were there checking the place out, like we do, yeah, we go to cemeteries. We found the grave of Eddie. Rochester Anderson. Rochester, if you must sleep during a television show, why does it have to be mine? Why don't you sleep when Bob Hope is on? I tried that, but the laughs kept waking me up. <laughs> Which Rochester, by the way, on his grave. Yeah. I like know. Rochester was a character that he played. A beloved character. Who was created by Jack Benny for the radio. And he could have swapped him out at any time. He could have just been like, ah, it's not working out. I'm going to get somebody Some else. Some other Rochester. Or just starting in radio. It was not uncommon to just get a white guy to, right. to do the voice of uh, his, his valet. Yeah. After I finished cleaning the house, I assorted the fan mail, and again, I got more than he did. As a character, Rochester was always a domestic. So as much as he would be in it for himself, and as many jokes as he would get on Jack Benny, his boss... Mm-hmm. You know, where he would come out on top. Yeah. Any zingers that he got in there. So many. Any schemes that he enacted, he was always still the domestic. Yeah. You know. Rochester. Oh, hello, boss. <laughs> you been sitting here all the time? Uh-huh. With the phone. Didn't you hear the phone? Uh-huh. Well, why didn't you answer it? This is my day off. <laughs> but in the book that I showed you, written in like 72... It says that uh, because he called him boss instead of sir, like, you know, saying, like, these things moved in degrees. That was, like, a degree Mm. that he had the relationship with him to not call him sir. So that's a more familiar term. Yeah, a more jovial term. Right. Perhaps. More casual. And and the book points that out. He's like, it doesn't sound like much now. Right. And now, then, was 1972 when he wrote the book. Yeah. But he's like, it it actually, it made a difference. Wow. With the character. Versus other characters that had come before. Right. Who were like the black sidekicks. Where to, Mr. Topper? Carrington Place. Pardon me, boss, but could I sort of inquire what we're going to Carrington Place for? To look for a body. Better look for one for me, too, because the one I'm using now is now. Basically playing the same character. He then did Topper Returns in 1941, mm-hmm. which... You saw first. I really enjoyed Topper Returns. I watched it because there was a website that you sent me to 
it was like allblackmovies.net or something. Oh, okay. And it was, it was like, if you're looking for the frightened sidekick stereotype, if you're looking for this type of black character, you know, here are examples of this. And it kind of contextualized and they're like, this is what this type of character was at the time. And it, it like listed characters that were this. And one of them said Eddie Rochester Anderson in Topper Returns. And I was like, well, I must see that then because you've made me a fan of his from Jack Benny's TV show. Come on, Eddie, you want to help me, you know? With what, boss? With the body. The body. Okay, I'll go with you, but kind of keep to one side because I got a feeling some running's going to be done. It's a, one of a series of Topper movies. Yeah, Topper, it's one of the sequels. Uh, Roland Young plays Cosmo Topper, a mousy banker who gets into trouble because of his ability to see and speak with ghosts. And Billy Burke plays his wife. She was Glinda the Good Witch in... The Wizard of Oz. Oh, was she? And she's constantly befuddled by her husband's strange antics. So I love that premise, though. I love the idea that he can see and speak to ghosts, and it constantly gives him problems in his life. And gives Rochester. Well, he, yeah. he played he played Eddie. They would just call him by his actual name. Yeah. Uh, they just threw in, like, an inside joke, and he's like, I'm going back to Mr. Benny. And everyone probably lost their mind. Yeah. At that joke. Right. And um, as the sidekick... He fell down the same hole at least twice. You know, yeah. there was a trap door that opens, and he's just like, yeah! and then at the bottom, there's a seal that messes with him. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> he's very funny. Yeah. Plenty of frights, ghost-based frights, even though the ghost in this is like a, a leggy young woman mm-hmm. who got murdered and mm-hmm. now wants to solve her own murder. Yes, and one thing I will say about this movie that like really impressed me was the special effects in it were good. There were moments that happened where I was like, how did they do that? Back in 1941. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying in is camera. this movie is just fun uh, in general. On me, boss, but could I get confidential for a moment? Well, what is it? Do I look as pale as I feel? What's the matter with you? I don't know, but there's somebody here I can't account for. And I was right, though. At the end, these characters always get, like, the last yeah. line. Um... It's what you do with them at, at the time, I guess. It's like, you know, you go out on a laugh and you give it to the black guy and he'll say something funny. And in this one, he gets so frightened. He sees the ghosts. By the end, there's two ghosts. He sees them both and outruns a car mm-hmm. while running away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was right. Yes. Cold comfort. Yes. Okay. Okay. Enough is enough, and that's what I've had a abundance of. All right, so this brings us to the other grave that you and I saw at Valhalla, that of Mr. Mantan Moreland. When we were at his grave, you kept saying his name, and I had not yet watched a movie with him. And so he was just kind of an idea to me at that point in time. But now that I've seen... I had at that time probably seen one, Uh uh-huh. and now I've seen a bunch. Oh, yeah? A fan, are we? I got to urge that I want to leave, but my legs won't cooperate with me. You want to leave for where? I just saw something going there. It's a combination between Dracula and a zombie, just fresh out of a graveyard. A graveyard? Mm Mm-hmm, but an old one. But that I got to see. So, Mantan, Moreland, I guess given the benefit of time, you know, this was 20 years after Haunted Spooks, things had progressed at a snail's pace, I'm sure. What movie are you speaking of now? Well, in general, because uh, King of the Zombies. We've moved on to King of the Zombies. 
Oh, I see. 20 years after Haunted Spooks. Got it. Yes. Yeah. We're still in 1941 where we were for Topper Returns. For Topper Returns. This is where we're at now. And, okay. So, Mantan Moreland was a big draw in Charlie Chan films. Yes, you told me about this. Which I feel I should get into a bit. Mr. Chan, it sure is good that you're a big detective. You sure carries a lot of weight. My personality always count in end. He's a detective. He's always respected. He always gets his man. When people see him, they're like, my friend Charlie Chan. And people are like, Charlie Chan, the famous detective? This is Inspector Charlie Chan, famous Honolulu detective. Very great pleasure. The pleasure is all mine. He would speak in kind of a halting English. You know, with like a Chinese accent. Hold on, is this that Asian gentleman you sent me who was in the sketch, the indefinite talk sketch with Mantan Moreland and that other guy? That was one of his sons. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. When they would cast one of his many sons, and sometimes daughters, they would cast actual Asian actors. Mm-hmm. But for the part of Charlie Chan himself... That's right. It was always a white guy. You told me that. Ugh. Ugh. And... It's so gross. Among his children was a key Luke. You might know him as the old man from Gremlins. Wow. What did I tell you, Pop? A lot of funny things happen on the boat. Please keep eyes open and mouth shut. And along the way, he... <laughs> Mantan Merlin was on as uh, Birmingham Brown, who started as a taxi driver, and then Charlie Chan, who lives in Hawaii, whenever he would like visit the mainland. And when these were made around World War II, he was always working for the War Department, and there would be like a an American scientist go missing or something, and he's got to, like, figure out who stole his formula, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so there, it was mysteries, which were sometimes kind of spooky mysteries. There'd be, like, a big house and, like, a skeleton. A jitterbug and a skeleton. Now I've seen everything. So they weren't straightforward horror, but they just started bringing Mantan Moreland along for the ride. Um, he was his cab driver twice, and then they just made him his chauffeur. Mm. Uh, Charlie Chan, smart, but a pretty dry character. So he really depended on comic relief. Birmingham, you remain here and watch body. Yes, sir. Hmm? Ain't that something? This place is jumping with live people, and I got to stay here and keep company with a body. Ooh, me. So Charlie Chan would go off and explore one thing, and then Man Tan Moran, once they really got into the groove of these movies, the formula of this era of Charlie Chan, then Charlie Chan's kid whichever adult child was, um, and, and they didn't speak with an accent. They'd be like modern. Mm. They'd be like, hey, Pop, you got to get with the times. Mm. They'd get paired up with Mantan and go off on their own exploring. Ah, this looks like an excellent place for murder. That's what I thought. But now by you agreeing with me, don't make me happy. Did Charlie Chan start as like a comic book character or was he created for I, the I movies? Think pulp novels. Okay. Well, I was asking because I just figured that made sense that the character in the novel or whatever would be a really smart Chinese man, but then they're like, who are we going to cast? And, and uh, God, a Swede, God apparently. Help me, Warner Oland. I'm going to Google it because I want to know. What's his name? Warner Oland. Warner. I just want to see what he looks like. I'm, I'm probably going to regret it. Ay, ay, ay. Why would they do this? Okay. Got so it. between... Having the last laugh, let's say, you know, what I've been talking about, how like they would just sort of right. swing over. They would always swing over to Birmingham Brown, and he would get off some line about like seeing ghosts or something or sure. some confusion. And just the act of how 
Birmingham and like number one son, number two son would go off and have their own little side adventures and like discover a sliding bookcase or something. I realized what I'd been watching this whole time and not just, you know, the Charlie Chan films, but like the sort of scary, scary comedies where the stakes were never too high, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe a murder, but just a lot of cobwebs and bats and sliding bookcases and people trying to scare other people off. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I'd grown up with this formula. It's Uh Scooby-Doo. And for a moment I was like, oh yeah, these are Scooby-Doo. Until I realized that the black sidekick was the dog. Oh, Jesus. Right? They always got the last laugh. They're always like, oh, Scooby. And he's got some giant sandwich and he's like. Right. Right. They always end on a laugh from Scooby. And Scooby's always really scared. If he discovers something, it's by accident. Right. You know? Yeah. It's not like, I deduced this. It's always like, I sat down and found a clue. Right. You know? Oof. Um, I don't feel that you're wrong, Marshall. I'm glad that if their tradition continued, it's with a cartoon dog. Uh And we've really left assigning this kind of character to people. It seems a shame to make such a beautiful girl into a zombie. She will be just as nice to look at. Say, look here, y'all know one thing? I believe Pee-wee done been turned into a zombie. A zombie? What do you mean? When a person dies and is buried, it seems a certain voodoo priest who, who have the power to bring him back to life. How horrible. It's worse than horrible because a zombie has no will of his own. How we know a zombie if we see one? If you see a corpse walking around, that's a zombie. You're watching our Halloween movie, White Zombie, starring Bella Lugosi, John Heron, Madge Bellamy, and a bunch of other people I've never heard of. Cat. Yeah. Zombies. Yes. So, I did a little research. I talked to a guy who knew a guy who's like an expert. Who was a zombie? Who's like an expert in zombies. Uh-huh. I met him at the Midsommar party. Cool. And I mentioned zombies and we got to talking. Awesome. So I was like, can you check with your friend, the expert? What was the first film having to do with zombies? Was it White Zombie? Because I can't find anything really before that. Maybe I need better keywords. Right. Or you need to find a book from 1972. Yeah. The library. Well, it turns out there was a book. The book was... Uh, listener, I just have to paint a picture for you, which is that Marshall has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I mean like a dozen stacks of notes printed out and stapled, and some of them are right in front of him, and some of them are to the side spread out on the floor. I believe this might be the most research he's ever done for a podcast. I certainly had the time. (laughs) Um. There was a book. Yeah, there was a book written in 1929 by, I guess I'll just call him an adventuring anthropologist. And I don't know if how much he wrote was really true, but mm. in 1929, when you're saying like, hey, I visited these foreign lands and here's what they get up to. Who can argue with you? Yeah. So among the things, he would study the occult mm. and he spent some time in Haiti. So are you saying that these movies were based on his accounts in the book? I think more... Or the portrayal of voodoo? Yes. And I more think like the first couple movies, particularly White Zombie. Mm-hmm was based on it, and then subsequent movies were based on movies. Right, of course. You know what I mean? Of course. Because... You've established this thing, and people are like, all right, so we can have some natives and... I think we really lost the thread 
of what actual voodoo was. And then it just sort of became whatever you needed. It was kind of like witchcraft gets treated in movies. Oh, the book was called The Magic Island by William Seabrook. Okay. Zombie, the living dead, corpses taken from their graves, were made to work in sugar mills and fields at night. And back then, zombies weren't like brain eaters or flesh eaters. That would come later. Mm -hmm. They were just people without any will of their own. I've seen people act like that in pictures. What do they call them? Zombies or something? No, no, honey, there aren't any such people. That's only a scenario writer's nightmare. But then as, as time went on, movies, I think, just became based on other movies. And totally. if you needed a voodoo person to do something, some power, you just gave it to them. And you're like, ah, it's voodoo. Mm -hmm. You know, what are you going to totally. do? Check? Right. So for me, the just chillingest part of White Zombie, which I'd heard the title for years because of the band White Zombie. And I always pictured like just a pale ghoul. Mm -hmm. I didn't know the big deal was that normally zombies are black. Right. But this one was white. Right. Hence, white zombie. Right. So it, in this case, it's a woman. And that, that's a whole other kettle of fish who gets the whammy put on her so a, a rich landowner in Haiti can make her his bride. Mm -hmm. But when he goes to see the voodoo king, a guy who like stole all of his knowledge, played by Bela Lugosi, very well. Mm-hmm. There's the sugar mill scene. This part's... Yeah, you you messaged me about this. Yeah. Or put it in our shared note. You were like, this scene really yeah. got me. I was like, if you can't watch the whole movie, watch this yeah. scene. Which is they're just absently just a room full of large black men working with blank stairs. And there's this big machine that they turn by hand that grinds the sugar cane into sugar. And it just goes round and round and it crunches up the sugar. You see it crunching yeah. up the sugar cane. And then... One of the zombified men falls in and... It just keeps going. They never show it to you and they never reach any resistance. You know, they're not like, oh, something's weird. Right. They just keep... And it, they're certainly not like, uh-oh, someone fell in. He doesn't it's scream. Just, no. It doesn't break pace. Right. And you can hear it all over the factory. And so we, we follow the guy as he goes to see Bela Gosi and, and like, I'll give you anything. Just make her my bride. And in the background, the whole thing just endlessly is that. And you're just like, there's a man in there! It haunts your dreams, doesn't it? Hoof. Yeah. One little thing about... Oh, I just went down a little bit of a rabbit hole about... Yeah, me too. I know. Um, so, early zombie films, like yeah, White Zombie. The earliest. Um, underscore the moral and sexual peril of innocent and beautiful white women who must be saved and returned to their rightful place at the European male's side. So the lady in White Zombie who gets the whammy put on her, who is the white zombie, the whole idea is, oh, how horrifying. She's been yeah. she's been assimilated into this other group. It's about a zombie. Okay. A white zombie. What? We got to get her back to the safety and purity uh, and it's, it plays on all those themes from Birth of a Nation and all these other movies that perpetuate the idea that white women have to be saved from black men. Well, the same fate as black men in this one. Yes, that's true. Um, and they're, in but, other words, they're better than that fate. Oh, right? sure, yeah. There's there's a whole room full of zombified black men, but it's, you know, we got to save Madge Bellamy. Exactly. So... Ten years later, because that was in the early 30s, by now, zombies and voodoo have become such a thing in movies and popular culture that uh, it's high time for a comedy. We're 
Where do you think we are? Search me. We lost a few hours ago. Probably somewhere between Cuba and Puerto Rico. Is it that bad? It ain't good. Uh-oh. I know that I wasn't cut out to be no blackbird. It was made like a hair before World War II. So the bad guy is... We're talking about King of the Zombies. Yeah. We keep they, they never say the bad guy is like a Nazi scientist, but they're also saying that. Mm. Mm-hmm. And they crash on his island in the Caribbean. And, and they, we are talking about our lead and his valet, Mantan Moreland, and yeah. another guy. Yeah, well, there's two basically indistinguishable white guys yeah. who are as bland as butter. Yeah. But one of them has a valet in the plane with him, and that's Mantan Moreland. Yes. And he's basically the star of this movie. Yeah, he's quipping from the very start. He's very funny. I know they wanted smart. to get Bela Lugosi as the so-called king of the zombies. I'm glad they didn't even though I would have liked to see the two of them share a screen, because it would have made it a Bela Lugosi film. And as is, despite the movie posters of the time, nobody watches the movie for these two bland white guys. Yeah. If I don't you remember watch anything it, about them. They were interchangeable. Yeah. Even though one was like the fight man and the other was like the brain. If you're watching it, you're watching it for Mantan Moreland. Rest in peace. If that means what I think it means, they sure don't waste no time around here. You know, the plane crashes, and he lands in a cemetery, and he thinks he's dead. Yeah. And it just goes from there, and they separate him because he's a servant, so he has to go down to the servant quarters. Yeah. You will be taken care of. That's what I'm afraid of. In the servants' quarters. Mumbo will show you the way. Mumbo? That goblin? Do I have to go with him alone? He won't hurt you if he likes you. And if he don't? And so one of the details about these black sidekicks in their emasculation is they're basically sexless. But by the time he got to Mantan Moreland, at least, mm-hmm. he got a uh, attractive kitchen girl. Well, and notably, to, uh, to flirt with. the kitchen girl is also black. So yes, they wouldn't yes. make him able to flirt with a white woman. No, no. Anyway. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's... Mm-hmm. But yeah, she's cute. I had me a bull once, and he wasn't no common old valet like you neither. What become of him? He was killed. Do you miss him much? Not much. I sees him every now and then. Who's that? He's Lazarus. That zombie you met last night. Oh, Lazarus, that boy? The movie's greatest comedy comes when he gets hypnotized into believing he's a a zombie. zombie. Yes. I am a zombie. I am a zombie. Move over, boys. I'm one of the gang now. He is stubbornly convinced that he is a zombie. That's right. And she then talks him out of it. Don't bother me, woman. Can't you see ours a has-been? A zombie? Nothing else but. You ain't no zombie. Zombies can't talk. Can I hip it because I'm loquacious? There was a sequel called Revenge of the Zombies, which he's also in, and so is, who we also meet in the kitchen, the actress... You uh, were quite taken with her? So I wanted to know more about this actress because she was a little bit older. She was credited as Tahama, the cook and high priestess. Tahama cooks for the living, not the dead. Voodoo high priestess. Yes. And her name in real life was Nellie Crawford, but also she was known as Madame Sultewan. And of that name, Lillian Gish, I don't know if that name sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. She's the star of Birth of a Nation. I didn't take the time to figure out when they worked together or how she knew her. Because she was in Birth of a Nation. Was she? Or other D.W. Griffith films. At any rate. Films, but... She worked with her. Lillian Gish was a big silent film star and worked for a while. Anyway, she said, We never did discover the origin of her name. No one was bold enough to ask. 
But anyway, she was the daughter of slaves. And I bring this up because number one, of course, I mean, you know, many people in this time were, but also just to give us context, like, I know we all know this, but it's just wild to me that like we watch a movie that came out when certainly our parents were either born or almost born. Some of our parents, just depending. I know. About eight years later for my Alex, dad. Alex's dad was, uh, I think. At any rate, we have a much stronger and closer connection to slavery than I think a lot of Americans want to admit. It feels like ancient history, it, but no, it ain't. But it ain't. Um, so on February 1st, 1959, Madame Sultuan, a.k.a. Nellie Crawford, passed away after suffering a stroke at the age of 85, so she lived a nice long life. She also was at Valhalla where we were, oh. so we could have visited her. I okay. did not realize that when we well, were there. Next time. Yes. Um, and also I wrote with an exclamation point, Mantan gets the last line. Did you get his last line from this movie? Oh, it's it's great, but what, what is it? There's if there's one, one thing, thing that I wouldn't want to be twice, zombies is both of them. Yeah, I'm glad you watched King of the Zombies. I really enjoyed I really enjoyed it. I think it was such a good example of early zombie films and Manton Moreland is a delight. He's very very talented. And you watched you looked up his indefinite talk. I thank you for sharing that. From with the me. stage. I hope you share some audio here. Boy, it's been a long time. I haven't seen you since longer than that. Yeah. The last time I saw you, you was living over. Oh, okay. I moved from there. Yeah. Sure, I moved over to uh, How can you live in that neighborhood? I don't know. Now where I'm living, I only pay It ain't that cheap, is it? Sure it is. Hey, look at you. Is you still married? No, I divorced her. Yeah. <laughs> From the stage, he and his comedy partner perfected it. And believe me, it's not motivated by the plot when twice they do it in the Charlie Chan films. He yeah. just runs into a friend of his and they do a whole set of indefinite talk. It's so deeply funny. I wonder... Oh, it's about... Uh, is it that late? It sure is. Well, thank you. I'll be seeing you. I'll revive. Uh, they make it look so seamless, but, like, that's not easy to do. Like, that is such a skill. It's all timing. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's like they're one person. It's so funny. Who's your friend? Uh, he didn't say it. Huh? <laughs> no, he didn't say it. <laughs> Going forward in time. Uh, past the 1950s, which the horror noir documentary will tell you that black people kind of dropped off as things got more science-based. Right. They can't which be is scientists. A shame. Yeah. No. It's like... I know. And it really lets you know what a big deal Ohura would be. Right. Not super long after that, when she's one of the main ones on the Starship Enterprise. And that can't be understated. Well, it's like by that time, they're starting to realize that, like, ah, in a forward-thinking, futuristic society, we won't be so controlled by color. A black right. woman could be in this position of power. Yeah. It's why we got, didn't we get like um, Morgan Freeman was president in one of these disaster movies? What was it? That was Deep Impact. But you know, it's like, it's a movie, so we could have a black president. Sure. Ugh. It's science oh, fiction. Movies. But do it enough times, it feels normal. And right. then you'll get a generation of young people who don't see it as anything uh, that's impossible. I'm president of America, which is basically the world, but you didn't hear that from me. But yes, so you were taking us to... The 1960s and Night of the Living Dead. Really just following zombies here. Night of the Living Dead. And we did a whole episode of Night of the Living Dead. Please go listen to it. I just re-listened to it and can confirm it's still good. Okay. 
Oh, our episode. <laughs> you yeah, our episode. Okay. Yeah. All right. Hanging in there. The movie's great too. Um, <laughs> but a couple of things we didn't mention. One, George Romero, the director, was Cuban, and as long as we're looking at race, I think that's oft overlooked. Yeah. I just assumed he was Italian because he's from the Bronx. Yes. Yeah, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Romero. Yeah. Yeah. So. Good to know. There's that. A night of total terror. The broad strokes are that the filmmaking group that made this independent film. Scrappy young group of producers, actors, directors, writers. In the Pittsburgh area. For their lead, they decided to go with Dwayne Jones, a black man. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't a sidekick. And he wasn't the bad guy. He was the hero. He's the protagonist. He was the final guy until he wasn't. And Romero has famously said that he chose him because he was the best actor, not because he was black and not because he was trying to make a statement of any kind. But, I mean, I think... I mean, we talked about this when we did the episode. It's like, you can't know what you're pulling out of the ether. And, like, maybe he didn't consciously do that to make some kind of a statement. But was it in the air at the time? (laughs) Sure. Sure. Well, the civil rights movement was... Yeah. Well underway, yeah. and once they'd wrapped the picture, and who knew if anybody would ever see the movie, they were on a farm in Pittsburgh. Yeah, for when you Pete's make Night of the Living Dead, you don't know it's going to be Night of the Living Dead. I'm going to board up the windows and the doors. Do you understand? We'll be all right here. We'll be all right here until someone comes to rescue us. But we'll have to work together. You'll have to help me. What horror noir gets into, which I think we left out the exact timing of it all, is. After it had been edited, Romero and like another of the producers had the movie in their car. They were going to New York City to find a distributor, start moving to the next phase. And en route, heard over the radio that Martin Luther King was assassinated. Wow. So that was April 1968. A turning point for the civil rights movement. Yeah, oh, I think it really cemented. Yeah. Some things. Yeah, I feel like, didn't they say that when they heard that he'd been shot, like, obviously they knew what it meant for the world, but I think that they understood that their movie was going to be received, it, that it would affect the way that the final moments of that film were received. It would be Couldn't weird if they how, didn't but, think that. Yeah. Because here they were with, you know, four reels of a black hero. Yeah. And now the leader of the civil rights movement has been assassinated. And the movie itself started as we got into in like kitty matinees. So it's not like it really hit the ground running. Yeah. It had to build. But build it did. And they were showing people something they'd never really seen before. One, a different kind of zombie. One, or two, I guess. <laughs> I'm just used to saying <laughs> That's one. That's how when numbers I wa- work. When I want to make a point, I just say yeah. one real loud. One, and then another one. All of the zombies were white. They might have only had access to white people to be their extras. Mm -hmm. But regardless, the result was now a real racial switch in the traditional zombie role. Won't be long for those things be back pounding their way in here. They're afraid now. They're afraid of fire. I found that out. They're also the living dead. They never say the word zombie in the film. They're the living dead. But... They've come to be known as, they redefined what we think of as zombies. You say zombie to somebody today, they don't think of the traditional Haitian enslaved 
Right. Worker. I grew up thinking about Night of the Living Dead zombies. The brains. And Dawn of the Dead zombies and the zombies I'd seen in pop culture. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And you're really crazy, you know that? You got a million windows up here. All these windows, you're gonna you're gonna make them strong enough to keep these things out, huh? I told you those things don't have any strength. I smashed three of them and pushed another one out the door. It was a black man rising to the occasion to fend off these white zombies as long as possible. And now it wasn't, we've got to save all these white zombies, like we were saying earlier. It was like, we have to shoot them in the head because that's the only thing that works for as long as we can. Well, and in another switch, and we mentioned this in our episode, of course, but the black man in this movie is not the one who is scared and hysterical and running away. He's the one who is level-headed. He's a man with a plan. He has to slap the white woman to calm her down. He hits, shoots or stabs. First he hits and later shoots. The man. The, the, white, white, the white man. Right, which it's kind of like your thing about a like family man. boss versus sir in the Rochester stuff. Yeah, progression by degrees. Exactly. It's kind of like that thing where it certainly must have hit harder then. Like, especially at the time, it probably felt pretty potent to see a black man hitting white people on screen. And didn't, in fact, didn't Dwayne Jones not want to do that? Yeah, yeah, we, we talked a little bit. He was like, it's like, is yeah, this a smart idea? You get to make art. I've got to go on with my life. Right. Yeah. Ooh. And then, okay, Night of the Living Dead. Um, but let's let's stick with Dwayne Jones. Yeah. As we move oh. forward. Let us please. Blackula. Dracula's soul brother. Deadlier even than he. Well, first, Blackula came out, and yes. we got into Blackula in our two-part Dracula episodes. I loved Blackula. It was so good. But what we didn't talk about was that the director of Blackula was a black man. Yeah, importantly, I think this gets into what we mentioned at the top about black people in horror versus Making black it. horror. Yeah. Right? Horror noir, as it were. The man was named William Crane. And something I found out, I mean, it's pretty easy. I just did a little math. He would have been about 23 at the time when he made Blackula. Wow. Which I was just like... Yeah, that's crazy. Okay. He had done an episode of The Mod Squad around that time, and he was out of UCLA. My guess was he probably had a pretty impressive student film to now be helming a black vampire film. Black exploitation is moving along. As a subgenre, mm-hmm. we're a few years in, and a few years from the end. It really didn't last that long before the whole thing kind of shut down. Right. Around this time, also for film in 1972, Paramount Studios had the uh, almost novel decision to have an Italian American director make an Italian American gangster movie. <laughs> so maybe it was in the air. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, we're going to make a black horror film. Let's let's find a black guy to direct it. Oh. Wow. Hadn't thought of that before. Um, Patting themselves on the back along the way. And they wanted to call it Count Brown's in town. Good Lord. And they wanted to name him Andrew Brown. Uh, Andrew Brown was the name of the Andy character in Amos and Andy. Okay. So they wanted just like... Let's go all in on it. A really silly Blackula. And just by the name, by the way, it sounds silly. Well, it's why for so many years, I never... You just dismiss it. Of course. Yeah. And then when we watched it, I was like, oh, shit. Like, I could have been watching Blackula all these years. They hired William Marshall, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who was much older than, probably twice the age of William Crane. 
And William Marshall is dignified and got that great voice. <laughs> Slavery has merit, I believe. Merit? You find merit in barbarity? Barbarous from the standpoint of a slave, perhaps. Intriguing and delightful for mine. I would willingly pay for so beautiful an addition to my household as your delicious wife. Between the two of them, they took it another direction and had the whole opening where, well, they made him a prince, first of all. Yeah. I don't know what they thought he was going to be before, but now they made Dracula, Blackula, a prince, right. an African prince. Yes. And he's arguing against slavery. Against slavery, but uh-huh. he's arguing against Dracula. So yeah. I guess Dracula really doesn't care about yeah. ending slavery. Uh, yeah. He's a bit of a villain, you know. Right. So I suddenly find your cognac as distasteful as your manner. You're behaving like some animal. Really? Really? Let us not forget, sir. It is you who comes from the jungle. But yeah, that's the whole opening. It's this uh, African prince gone to Romania to try to get other royalty on the same page to end the slave trade. Right. You shall pay, Black Prince. I shall place a curse of suffering on you that will doom you to a living hell. Dracula winds up biting him and killing his wife and and all that. And then he wakes up many years later in modern-day Los Angeles. And he's Blackula! Oh, isn't he in that gay couple's house? Yeah, well, they buy all of Dracula's antiques. That's right. Oh, man. (laughs) I've got to revisit this movie. It's just so much better than I thought it would be. A sequel, Scream Blackula Scream. Yes, how is that? Well, he's brought back, just speaking of voodoo, now we're up to a point where now voodoo is actually used to, like, help things and fight evil. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. Pam Greer, Pam Greer. the uh, the the, queen. She plays a voodoo priestess who comes up against, is first charmed by, as one would be, and then comes up against Blackula and his curse. Mm-hmm. Also, in Horror Noir, they talk about that one shot, and I don't know if you remember it from Blackula, but oh, they're set... in the hallway? In the hallway. Yeah, yeah. the police station? They had the hallway. This wasn't in the script. It was just like the set dictated the ability to have this great shot of a woman vampire running at a guy on a payphone. Yeah. Just like, and, you know, super scary. And he wanted a high-speed camera to capture that run in slow motion as Mm -hmm. just, like, she barrels down the hallway. And... They really didn't want to give it to him. I think on a producer's level, it was like, all right, make your days and we'll see. Right. Meanwhile, he had an all-white crew some of which were just sort of actively against him. They didn't want some, and I'll just add the age, some 23-year-old black kid telling these guys, even at an AIP level, you know, bossing them around. Um, So so he would meet with resistance at a lot of turns, but he just sort of had to pick his battles to get through it. Um, He had a much better experience on a later film that he did, Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde. Mm-hmm. The fear of the year is here. Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, a monster he could not control, have taken over his very soul. Starring Bernie Casey, Rosalind Cash, Stu Gillum, directed by William Blackula Crane. Again, the title sounds silly. It sounds as silly as Blackenstein, which was also a movie. But if you're trying to pick one of these to watch, 
watch Blackula. If you want to go a little deeper, and they all sound sort of equally silly in their titles, um, you could do worse than Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde. It's a good cast. It's got the same director as Blackula. And this time, he got a helicopter. <laughs> Whoa. Because the ending is at the Watts Towers. Damn. And Bernie Casey, who, he doesn't turn into a white man, he just turns white when he takes his serum. And very brutal. Um, he's trying to, like, um, he's trying to cure a disease, and he winds up experimenting on himself. And he's cornered by the police, and he climbs the Watts Towers. And they shoot him down. Wow. And that's the tragic end, too. Wow. He's not really called Hyde. It's just used, you know, because we get, he's not even Dr. Black. He's Dr. Pride. But it sets us up to know the The gist. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parents. So bring your mama, she'll like it too. Um, But among these films, you know, one movie makes money, then uh, somebody else wants to make money too. And this production company, rather ambitiously, they wanted to make five black-helmed films. Ganj and Hess would have been the second one. Because it was also the last one, they only got out two. I suspect that their plan was pay for each subsequent one with money made from the last one. And they really didn't know how to market Ganjin Hess. And it all just kind of fell apart. Yeah. But the filmmaker that they went to for that second film when they were like, hey, we want to make some Blackula-style money. This thing's on fire. Why don't you make us a black vampire film? And they went to... Bill Gunn. Bill Gunn. Who also has a great part in the movie. Yes, he cast himself in a part. So we're now talking about Ganja and Hess yep. from 1973. That's what we're up to. And he'd been waiting for this chance to make a movie. And I'm of the impression, not just then, but in lots of um, black-made films over the years, when you feel it's your only chance and it's your first movie... And you've been, you know, you're allowed to play with the big boys now, and you got a budget and everything. You tend to throw in a lot. You throw in your whole bag of tricks. Yeah. And you want to cover topics that are important to you, and you don't want to put it off for that second movie that may never come. Mm-hmm. Well, he even was reticent to do a vampire movie, and he was like, "I'll do it, but I'm gonna make it about addiction." addiction. Yeah. yeah. So it's gonna be about something deeper. Mm-hmm. And boy, he he went for it. He sure did. To show the world, to put on the screen things he'd been wanting to do, I'm certain under a different context, for years. Yeah. The only perversions that can be comfortably condemned are the perversions of others. I will persist and survive without God's or society's sanction. I will not be tortured. I will not be punished. I will not be guilty. Okay, so who's he going to get to play the erudite, handsome, educated, rich Mm -hmm. professor of antiquities? Dwayne Jones, who hadn't done much as far as movies, you know, hadn't really acted professionally since Night of the Living Dead. He is in his own time a professor. Yeah. And could fit right in with the, everything I just described. (laughs) For Dr. Hess. Mm -hmm. No, wait, was Hess his first name? Dr. Green, Hess Green? Yeah, I just, oh yeah, Hess Green. I work for Dr. Hess Green. And he's an addict. He's not a criminal. He's a victim. 
He lives in a big house and he drives an expensive car. And there's, among other things, there's a garden party scene, right? Mm-hmm. Where I believe we, we meet his son, who's like a young man. And they have a whole conversation in French, unsubtitled. Totally. If you know French, you get to know what they're saying. And if yeah. you don't speak French, too bad. Totally. By the way, I just have to say at this point that mm. what made me feel better about the fact, I think I texted you after I saw this movie, I said, this movie's too smart for me. I really enjoyed it, but it's way smarter than me. But I felt better because you sent me a link to something called The Blood of the Thing, which was a short documentary online about the making of Ganja and Hess. Yeah. And somebody says in the documentary, it's a movie that isn't about what happens, but how those things happen. It's more about mood than plot. Mm. And I feel like scenes like that, not that there's no plot because there is, but I just feel like moments where they're just speaking French and it's like, good luck if you understand it and really dreamlike sequences and all this stuff. It makes me feel better about feeling a little too dumb to understand it because at the end of the day, it's not necessarily like, that's not the point. You don't have to know every beat. Of the plot. It, it, it's a challenging it film. It kind of has to wash over you. Ça va bien. C'est formidable. C'est presque sans accent, ça. Alors, faut parler un peu en français. I think film viewers, well, I think I was told in these special features, film viewers had never seen that before. They'd mm-hmm. never seen the educated black man holding court in his own home. Right. And I think when they introduced him with, like, a Rolls Royce or some really fancy car, Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde had a Rolls Royce, <laughs> they introduced him with a fancy car and a fancy home and fancy clothes, and moviegoers in the middle of black exploitation, essentially, might have thought, ah, he must be a gangster mm. or a pimp. Mm-hmm. And I think some of these early scenes were just to dissuade the audience of that. And don't we think that's important, like, from a representation standpoint of, like, maybe they feel they need to take the time, and they probably do, because audiences make assumptions like that. And then forever it exists on celluloid or whatever is... No, he's a professor. Yeah. Who, who, by the way, like even says to his student, played by Bill Gunn, "You got to stop acting like this. They can't find you hanging in my tree." Like, yeah, he's, he's acting wild. He's, he's like, I have suicidal. neighbors who. It's important that I not rock the boat. I'm a black man in this nice neighborhood. You know. Uh, Doctor Green, actually, I thought to throw myself in one of your lakes, but I have an absolute horror of drowning. And God, your horrors outweigh your manners. It does. Kind of, I'm just patting myself on the back here for finding this. It kind of follows some of the broad strokes of not the traditional Dracula story, but the Christopher Lee Dracula, the first Hammer Dracula, in that a research assistant comes to his home and tries to kill him, doesn't succeed, and then later the vampire goes after his wife. Yeah, and, and woos, that's right. woos his wife or fiance. Yeah. Which is what happens. So wow. the, this guy, this kind of unstable man, played by the director. Yeah. He's electric on screen. Like, you really are like, what is he going to do next? Well, what he does do is he stabs Dwayne Jones with this artifact, and that's what turns him into a vampire. Right. Which isn't really clear, because they also say that happened in the beginning of the film, in text. So you think you're starting the movie, he's already a vampire, but he's actually not, but not until he gets stabbed, and I didn't get that right away. So It's a mood, Marshall. Let it wash over you. Okay. So then after a while of this growing need for blood, which, you know, first he just steals blood from the clinic, and then he, like, kills a prostitute and her pimp and drinks their blood, and it's getting harder to control, then that guy's wife, Bill Gunn's character's wife, uh, who is Ganja, Mm -hmm. she comes, and she's like, where's my husband? And he's like, I don't know, he's around here somewhere. And they fall in love, Mm -hmm. and he 
hides the addiction to blood from her for a while and then brings her in on it and together they're vampires. Yes. Everybody's some kind of freak. Everybody I know is into something. The way I'm saying it, it sounds much more straightforward than it actually gets presented yeah. to you. And I think we can't leave out mention of the incredible music composed and performed by Sam Wayman, who is the brother of Nina Simone. Yes. Fun fact. Also plays the priest. He's also, yes, he's also on Instagram oh, currently. Really? And yeah, he's like very active. He posts a lot of pictures. But I, I, the music just was really intoxicating to me and I found it to be so, so, so very good. I just needed to mention that. Why am I always cold? I don't know. Are you always cold? Mm-hmm. What have you done about it? Grown used to it. So then they live in addiction together for a while. And we've seen these kinds of movies, but not quite like this. Mm-hmm. Then he decides to end it all. He finds religion. Mm-hmm. And through religion, a way to stop the curse. And you stop the curse by stopping your life. Yeah. By having, you know, he's out in the sun plenty, so it's not that simple. Yeah. But he needs to believe. And in a long scene where he, like, finds religion, like, in the church, mm-hmm. which they filmed in, like, a real church and with, like, real parishioners. And that's among the many wild scenes. That's one. Yeah. He has to let the shadow of the cross land on his heart, I think is. That's the nuts and bolts of it. Mm-hmm. But really, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's just let it wash over you. Yeah, just let it wash over you. So the movie was on a list of movies that was given to me when I was a teenager. And I can By now, whom? a favorite teacher that, uh, they didn't teach any film, anything in my high school. So I had to go to the community college right. and take these night classes yeah. from a very dedicated and passionate teacher whose lists of what to see and examples of certain kinds of movies I kept. And over the years, I'd kind of take them off. And when I looked for Ganjin Hess, I found it under one of its names, Blood Couple. Yeah. And it was just a big old mess. It was a bad transfer. And I was like, well, I guess. And I watched it and it didn't make, it made even less sense in the form I watched it in because the producers of the film chopped it up different ways. They tried to increase the sex in it and make it like a sexploitation film. They released it under like five different titles. And a bunch of people, Bill Gunn and some other people took their names off the credits because it was no longer their movie. Like the, the DP didn't because he was like, well, I did shoot this stuff. But pretty much everybody else was like, nah. Yeah, so it was this sort of doomed film, except the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, would show it at least once a year. In its chopped up form or in its full form? In its intended form. Okay. And that's the version you can now watch as Mm -hmm. Ganjin Hess. That's the only version I've seen. I can't believe you saw the not good version first. Which, you know, I was like, oh, swing and a miss, I suppose. But I'm now convinced my teacher must have driven up to New York and caught it the MoMA. Yeah. In order for it to make uh, his list of, yeah. you know, great films that you should see. And that's how people had been watching it for many years, up until relatively recently, when it all uh, got put on DVD. And yeah. you no longer have to go to the MoMA to see Ganjin Hess. You're in the horror movie. I can dig it. Um, just a little more context for when Ganjin Hess came out. As far as horror at the time... Um, the last Dracula with Christopher Lee, Satanic Rites of Dracula, came out that year. The Crazies by George Romero came out that year. That's what he was up to. Um, same year as Blackenstein. And very important, 
The Exorcist. Wow. The Exorcist, among its influence, when it comes to the titles that they released Ganjin Hess under, uh, there was Blood Couple, The Black Massive Exorcism, the only ritual that could promise them death and an end to the horrors of possession. That was its tagline. There's no possession. Wow. There's no exorcism. No. Double possession was one of them. Mm. Playing it fast and loose with the word possession. Yeah. And also blackout, black vampire, black evil were other ones. Mm. When under double possession, the devil wanted their souls, she wanted their bodies, and more. <laughs> There's no devil, per se, yeah. you know, in this. Yeah. But that's just what a, a juggernaut that the exorcist was in 1973. Wow. So as you, you know, plant the exorcist right in the middle of the black exploitation boom, you're going with what's popular. So you get possession in uh, JD's Revenge, where a, a young black man gets possessed by a, the soul of like a gangster. The reincarnation of a killer who came back from the dead to possess a man's soul, make love to his woman, and get the vengeance he craved. And you get Abby. I've got. Abby, whose title was like Black Exorcist or the Black Exorcist for a while, um, it came out in 74, so they wasted no time after The Exorcist. They got sued by Warner Brothers. It's so similar to The Exorcist. Abby, a story of terror, lust, and exorcism. Grab her arms and hold her. But this time, instead of a 12-year-old girl, it's a preacher's wife who, in addition to getting possessed, becomes very sexual. She took the devil for a lover, and he possessed her body and soul. Following the beats of that, the Max von Sydow part, the old priest part, was played by William Marshall. Wow. From Blackula. Wow. And, you know, he goes to Africa, and he finds a piece, like an artifact from a malicious African deity, and it decides to take its revenge on him by possessing his daughter-in-law, Abby. Mm Mm-hmm. So then he's got to come back from Africa, just like the old priest and the exorcist, and he's got to perform the exorcism. Meanwhile, she's running around town, you know, killing people. Possessed. Possessed. Hear me, demon. Leave this woman's body. And really, my big takeaway from it was, man, William Marshall should have been in a better movie. He should have been the old priest Yeah. in the exorcist. Yeah, totally. And instead... I'm getting him in what was the working title was The Black Exorcist. The story of a woman possessed. Rated R. Eyeball. Don't blink. Don't turn around. Don't even move. Now you'll witness the most blinding horror ever seen. Marshall, I just wanted to give you a one-off because I read in many Googlings that I needed to watch Eyeball, which is like an Umberto... It's a giallo film. It's an Italian horror film. Anyway, uh, it was actually pretty fun. It's called Eyeball 1975, but I was told by the internet to watch it because it had the first black lead in a giallo film, which is not really true. She was like one of... The plot is like a guy is gouging people's eyeballs out who are on a tour group through Italy. Hardly the lead? No, hardly the lead. She's part of the cast of characters. Okay. And she's just finding it um, for italian giallo maybe that was a huge deal at the yeah. time. i don't know um yeah how far can you go before your eyes leave your body eyeball are we have we made our way to the 80s and 90s 
because yes, I, because we've... I because I don't think uh, I know I had intended, and I, I'm realizing now that there's just not enough time in the world, and maybe this will have to be maybe we'll have to do an addendum to our purge episode because I know I already talked about this in the purge episode, but there's since been another purge movie. Yeah. What I'm getting to is that I don't think we have time tonight, but I would love at some point to yell at everybody for an hour about the first purge. And this is just my PSA of, uh, I talked about it in our purge episode, but I think it is a better movie than people give it credit for and a more important movie than I think people give it credit for and a more prescient movie the time that it came out. Because all the things that happened ever since it came out make the movie seem a lot less silly. That's all I'm going to say here and now. But okay. I'm a fan of the movie The First Purge. I think it's very powerful. A well-placed theme in an exploitation film yeah. can really let you see past the rough edges. Now, I felt justified because there was an IndieWire review that described it as an absurd B-movie, but transfixing for the way it funnels Trump-era terror into an empowering crowd-pleaser. Uh, and so seeing someone else refer to it as like a scrappy B movie and that the franchise is a scrappy B movie franchise. And I was like, yeah, I think that's the way you look at it. Anyway, I could go on. I won't. I'll let it lie. But if you're listening to this and you're like, ah, I wasn't going to see that one. It didn't look good. I recommend it. That's what I'll say. All right. You and I saw that one together. We did, which is an, an achievement for us just to get our, even then, yeah, to get our uh, schedules to line up for a whole, you know, couple hours to see a movie. But we are now making our way in the great time machine of this podcast. We're taking a big leap here. Here we go. To Candyman. Early 90s. I feel like so much of my cultural knowledge was like planted and grown in the 90s. Sure. Because of the age I was. So a lot of the, if we're just talking black characters, a lot of the black characters I saw were in... Um, were brought to you through 90s media? 100%. And a lot of it 90s horror. And in fact, I found, I think it was on that website I was talking to you about before, which again, I can't remember, but they were talking about like how the rapper trend was kind of a new black horror character trope that came about sure. in the 90s. We had Raw Digga in 13 Ghosts, Aaliyah in Queen of the Damned, LL Cool J in H2O, Ice Cube in Anaconda. Like, think about how many rappers were like characters in these horror movies in the 90s which to me was just normal like that was just what it's what a horror movie had exactly the occasional rapper totally sure but you know this website positioned it as like oh this is kind of a new black character trope that's it man i'm getting the hell back to la blackhorrormovies.com i did write it down blackhorrormovies.com anyway have you ever heard of Candyman? Look in the mirror and say it once. Candyman. For fun. You don't believe all that nonsense anyway, do you? Say it again. Candyman. For a scare. A woman died in there. Leave it. Say it five times. No one ever got this far. You're dead. Candyman. Try it. We dare you. Candyman. Rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. Candyman, which came out in 92, so it filmed around 91. Yep. A real early effort among the 90s horror and horror that includes black people, I'll just say. Mm-hmm. Well. Of the 1990s. And I would say, I mean, this one. I'm really front and center. Is definitely a black, a black-centered was, story. It was yeah. made by a white British director and writer based on a short story by Clive Barker. Yes. Also white and British. Also white mm-hmm. and British, yeah. <laughs> and yes. so sometimes it takes like an, an outsider's perspective, I think, to really come in. And if you've got literally black and white, you've got the white Helen 
<laughs> coming to the Cabrini Green projects mm -hmm. to meet with the black Candyman. I'll call him a phantom. It's sure. Yeah. Uh, an urban legend. Sure. To start, um, to get an outsider's perspective, someone who's got no real stake in the game, mm -hmm. you might say, as and a he's British person. Studying them. Oh no, I was referring to the director. Oh, got it. Who was originally going to cast his wife? She got pregnant. Virginia Madsen was originally cast in the friend role mm -hmm. that was eventually taken over by Casey Lemons. Mm -hmm. So as scholars or just anybody sort of debates Candyman and its place within black horror, the fact that he seems to mostly kill black people, one, originally he was a British phantom. And it oh, was, in, the, in the story? In, in the short story. Okay. And it was about class. This sort of high-class student academic comes into the poorer neighborhoods and wants to study graffiti. Hmm. And through that gets sort of sucked in. Um, the movie, it's Virginia Madison, Madsen, a white grad student, I believe she is. Yes. We've got a real shot here, Bernadette. An entire community starts attributing the daily horrors of their lives to a mythical figure. Now, if Trevor and Archie were in on this, do you think they'd chicken out? In a second. Exactly. All right. She's studying urban legends, and so now her old part as the best friend has now been replaced with a black actress, Casey Lemons, mm -hmm. who was, I'm guessing, hot off playing the black best friend in Silence of the Lambs. Right. Which was a huge movie the year before. Yeah. So now she's in this part, and I'm kind of glad that she wasn't written black. Yes. Just because... She's never used as a go-between. Mm -hmm. You know, right. Virginia Madsen never says, you talk to these people. Right. And <laughs> in know? fact, she, like, Virginia Madsen's like, let's go talk to them. And she's like, no, this is a bad idea. And you're right. When they get there, she's not asking her to, like. She's not, like, kind of pushing her ahead, right. being like, she's black and I'm her friend. Right. And importantly, I do feel like the Cabrini Green people, the people who live there, don't really treat them terribly differently. They just look at them as they both must they be think, like undercover cops. They or think something. they're cops. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when they show right. up. And that kind of information I only got after um, the Blu rays special features are all available on YouTube. So I had a little fun watching some of those. They're pretty thorough. There's a lot to this movie. There is. And I think I've been influenced not even by watching the sequels, but just the existence of the sequels, because the sequels were already out before I ever saw Candyman for the first time. So I knew he was a continuing thing. Yeah. So I watched it more, and for Pete's sakes, it's called Candyman. It's not called Helen the Academic. Mm -hmm. So I was watching it for him. Right. But if you just take it all on its own as a single film, it does end with her kind of usurping him. Yeah. yeah at the end, the mural is of Helen. Well, know. and what I understand is this idea that... He's making her the thing that people are afraid of. It's like her Somehow origin story. Somehow that's going to feed his power. Uh, well, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Or maybe he just loves the revenge of it all because of what happened to him. Well, that, I don't know what his backstory was, but apparently it was Tony Todd working with the director. So Tony Todd had already been cast. Yeah. So there was already a script. Yeah. And it was, you never see what happened, which the backstory of Candyman is just spoken about. You never see it yeah. until the sequels. He was a 19th century black man, a painter. He had an affair. He impregnated a white woman and was chased through town and, like, 
lynched. And they cut they cut off his they cut off his hand. And they They covered it, him in honey. And then the bees came. Ugh. And now he goes around with a hook for a hand. Right. With bees as his sort of harbinger. What I think is interesting, I read this somewhere, they say how What's interesting is that he relishes his role as a malevolent immortal. We don't know if he was a decent man in his past life. We're left to wonder if it was the circumstances of his death that turned him evil. Oh, that's interesting. They don't say he was good. They say he was lynched for he, having he for wasn't sleeping going with around, a white woman. Yeah, but he wasn't going around killing people with a hook when he was right, a person. Right, right. But he seems to, I mean, he it's very sexual. Oh, yes. Which also, of course, is like brings to mind all the black man, white woman stuff. The year before was Spike Lee's Jungle Fever. Both of you got jungle fever. And that made headlines. Yeah. That was black man, white woman. Oh, yes. Look, this is the 90s. There's nothing wrong with it, you know? So as they were making it, that movie was coming out. And a little bit did get cut by the studio of their the more physical side of the Candyman and Helen. Mm-hmm. As she gets sort of drawn in by him. Well, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, she gets drawn in by the legend. Right. And... She has a guy get arrested who's been sort of trading on the Candyman reputation. That scene is horrifying. In the bathroom? Yes. Oh my goodness. So when the residents of the project stop thinking that Candyman is a phantom mm. and just a guy, right. he'll lose his power. Yes. So it's the kind of like, you know, do gods only exist if people still believe in them? Well, the and ghosts not, only exist and if exactly, people believe in them. And not just good things, but like the idea that when you apply a stereotype to a whole group of people, like the damage that can do. And, you know, he trades in that idea when he is creating a monster out of her. I am the writing on the wall, the whisper in the classroom. Without these things, I am nothing. So now I must shed innocent blood. And holy moly, that scene where she wakes up. Covered in blood. Oh, my God. Yeah. It doesn't get better. And no. you're like, oh, it's dog blood. Oh, my God, it's oh, dog blood. Oh, it just gets worse. Oh, my God. What a movie. Yeah. And she's done the damage of taking away from his legend, and now she has to put it back, basically. Yeah. It's a bit, as far as it's, let's just say, racial politics, it's a bit patchwork. Mm-hmm. Because... Certainly. It was, you know, started as a British thing. The casting got redone. It was supposed to be about class. And through the debates, I guess the conclusion is that you can't just do a one-to-one translation from class to race. Right. British class to American race. Right. You can't just sub one out for the other. Totally. But the world got an iconic black monster. Yeah. An iconic horror character. And he's with, not with its just own horrifying, past. he's, like, sexy. Like and Dracula was. And he's meant to be. Yes, exactly. That's not just me going, like, Tony Tad is sexy. This isn't just me. Charming, sort of. Right. And we're told through storytelling and filmmaking that he's seductive, that she is seduced by his dulcet tones, by, you know, his sexy voice, by whatever he's saying to her. Our names will be written on a thousand walls. Our crimes told and retold by our faithful believers. We shall die together in front of their very eyes and give them something to be haunted by. Come with me and be immortal. Um, The sequel to Candyman, the part two, I would like to applaud for not 
using voodoo. Because by 1990s, you know, we've had many years of just black equals voodoo, you know? Yeah. And part two is set in New Orleans, the American capital of voodoo. they didn't take that bait, huh? Nope. Wow. It's still its own thing. Nice. Yeah. And they didn't, they didn't like retcon it and be like, um, a voodoo priest did a thing. Right. I mean, there's some retconning. There's like a mirror where, you know, his soul is trapped, I believe. And it's all set to the backdrop of Mardi Gras, and it's very New Orleans. But they never go into what was, again, a trap. You know, it's like, it's it's easy. It's been done before. It could have really just been bad, I I guess I'm just saying. So congratulations, Candyman 2. You directed me towards the Horror Noir Uncut podcast segments that are on Shudder. Yes. And I watched Tony Todd talking about Candyman. Mm -hmm. And I just have to share the most charming thing. So, like, he was saying that he was just very serious about all of this and did a lot of work, you know, as an actor, like a lot of background work on the character. And he just, he was extremely thorough with this role per his own statement. And he said that he and Virginia Madsen ballroom danced, Mm -hmm. horseback rode, and did fencing together. They did these activities together to prepare for this role. I mean, it's like they literally did all these like partnered activities to Crazy, right? connect, to grow that connection, to grow that sort of dance between them, literally and figuratively. And I adore that. I love knowing that. Like, that was part of their prep for this movie. The bees on her were less than 24 hours old and didn't really tend to sting. They hadn't really developed their stinging capabilities yet. And they also didn't fly. They just kind of crawled. Oh, my God. They're so stressful to watch. Little fuzzy crawling things on her. Ugh. Whereas Tony Todd had flying bees whose stingers were matured. So he got stung 23 times in the first film I've read. Oh, my God. And got $1,000 for each sting I've also read. Oh, that's fun. Something I know that happened is the bee wrangler had him get around the bees at first and taught him to personalize them and name them so that he didn't fear them as much. Wow. And can bees really smell fear? I don't know. I've heard. I'd be out of luck. <laughs> I've heard that they can, but I also heard it in Jerry Maguire, so I'm not sure. Mm. You know bees and dogs can smell fear? But it certainly helped him as an actor be more calm around the bees. That was his, uh, his acting trick. Wow. Um, by the way, it was in... We uh, we haven't mentioned her enough, and part because I'm not sure about her for Tener Tener Tanana Reeve. Tanana Reeve. Mm-hmm. Tanana Reeve Do. Okay, Tanana Reeve Do is in one of the special features. Yes. Uh, her and another scholar just speaking of Candyman for like over 20 minutes, I think. Is the other scholar Stephen Barnes? It's her husband. Oh. I don't know. I I wrote, it's in my... Oh, Oh, okay. Hold on. I would think it might be them because they work together a lot, but they also, they run the class that I'm doing online. Yes, which we haven't mentioned much of. In order to prepare, you started taking a whole, like, course. Yeah, I'm not through it. I'm piecemealing it, but I've been reading things and watching things, and Candyman is part of it, and a lot of the required... It's kind of based around horror noir, which she produced, they produced, and so... A Which is based it. on her book. We've never mentioned. Yes. So there's also, like, essays. There's speeches that she had. She had Jordan Peele come in and talk to her class. 
after Get Out. And so there's a lot of really cool talks and reading and everything. I'm just slowly working my way through their class. Anyway, so yes, Tanana Rivdu. You said she was in a segment about it? Yes. Yeah. So just like, as deep as I think I'm going, I've never gotten too far away from Ms. Dew. Yeah. Speaking of... Well, I had a transition in mind. Oh, speaking of Ms. Dew, her class is called the... It's from Get Out. Well, it's called The Sunken Place. The Sunken Place. Mm-hmm. A lot of the documentary is all sort of pointed towards when Get Out comes out. And I just wanted to say that it is a juggernaut of a movie and an important movie, which is why we'll be giving it its own episode at some point. And you and I saw it together. Yes, we did. That was my second time seeing it. But you'll hear all about that. It's my first time. Yeah, we'll cover it later. Now, sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. Sink. But what we've had the advantage of is now, like, two more years of seeing how Get Out has influenced things. Two more since... Oh, since the horror noir documentary came out. And there's some things you can point to and say, I don't think that would have been a thing. I don't think that would have necessarily gotten greenlit. I don't think it would have necessarily gotten financing if it wasn't for the success of Get Out. Totally. Another thing briefly is, by the way, hiring, you know, one black filmmaker or actor can then result in more being hired. I'm thinking of Demon Knight. Mm-hmm. Where, um, was it Jada Pinkett? Jada Pinkett from Menace to Society. Yeah, so Jada Pinkett gets hired, and then she's got a character in it who's an aunt. So, you know, then they made the aunt a black actress, and that's uh, CCH Pounder. Mm-hmm. And she was the one with, like, one arm. Yeah. And she's like, you can't see it, but I'm giving you the finger. <laughs> <laughs> so one success can lead to others mm-hmm. pretty quickly. Sometimes. Yeah. Although I think it's a good opportunity to sort of just say that I think that a lot of what's been greenlit post Get Out and especially in the climate we're living in now, Mm -hmm. and this is something I've talked to some friends of mine about, is that there are so many projects getting greenlit that capitalize on black pain and the horrors of the black experience. And while that I get it, why I get it. But I think at a certain point, like, I, I've i had black friends say to me, like, I can't watch some of this stuff. Like, it's it's getting tired quickly because it's... Okay. Because it's... Lar- production companies largely run by white people monetizing suffering and the Hollywoodification of suffering. So, like, them, you know, the Amazon series, which I... Mm. Yeah, I've watched a few episodes and it's very well made. It's very good. And at first blush, I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. But then, you know, you start realizing, like, I read a few articles, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, this is a part of this trend of, like, this is what black horror is right now. And the bottom line, and I didn't come up with this phrase, but I've read it, is, like, black history is black horror. Like well, That's basically one of the first things they say in horror noir, there the we documentary. Go. That's, where I, that's where I got it from, right? So, like, so I got, okay, but then at a certain point, like, We want to be able to make movies. We want to be able to have movies made that are by black people for black people that aren't just about like how hard it is to be black. So that they, so that there's more representation of black people, you know, flourishing instead of being battered down by what. Or I mean, just in terms of horror, because that's our yeah, our totally bailiwick here. Um, You know, they can face. Well, do you think us, the film us, the 
follow up to if any movie can be said to have been directly the result of the success of get out it would probably be us for sure um it didn't have to be a black family no you know for sure and and it was horrifying and creepy Mm -hmm. and um precise oh yeah uh the precise horror of jordan peele yes it's like a swiss watch i love it so i guess what you're saying is perhaps a good direction to go in the future so people don't tire of... Yeah, I mean, I get, and it's not even just so people don't tire of it. It's just so that the representations we get of black folks, not just in horror, but we're talking horror specifically, aren't just them suffering because of their race and with all these through lines that have to do with that and black history and all that. And, like, I also see the argument that how do you not speak to it when the people starring in a film are black? Like, how is it not, sure. how is it not a part of it? And I'm not saying it shouldn't be... But I just think it is it is an interesting moment where we're seeing um, where there is an exploitation of black suffering is what I'm saying. Okay. Because it is in the air and because because we're all talking about it. But how painful is that to see? You know what I mean? Like, I guess I I'm trying to understand that and be empathetic about it. And I'm just kind of thinking like. I mean, I don't know if I were sexually assaulted in a really violent way and that that was something that was like a huge endemic problem right now in our country or something. And then suddenly there were a lot of a lot of rape revenge films everywhere. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't that's not a one-to-one correlation. Perhaps like a woman couldn't get a part that wasn't about that. There you go. Yeah. And so, yeah. And again, it's like I don't. It's a tough thing to be a trend. Yes. Yes, exactly. And a trend that people make money off of. Like, a lot of money. A lot of money. And I don't want to knock the great work that people are doing with these things that are so well made. And that we need. Like, some of it is catharsis that we need. Like, horror is catharsis in a lot of ways. So, like, you know, I'm just, it's very complicated. Mm -hmm. And I'm not making a final statement on it. I just think it's important to note that that's, like, something that's happening right now. I watched Bad Hair. I just finished watching that. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, I watched it just because we were doing this podcast. Yes, it looked like something that probably came out as a result yeah. of Get Out, perhaps. I think that's safe to say. It's just hair. Just, it's just hair. It won't let you. Fucking it won't let you. It was a good blend of, like, actual horror, and it was kind of funny. Well, I mean, you know, it's set in, like, the... The late 80s, so it got to bring with it like a lot of uh, 80s styles. Yeah. The style it points to the most being uh, Weaves. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't spend a lot of time thinking about Weaves and such. I learned about them through Sinbad and the comedy of Sinbad Uh in the the 90s. Okay. If you're bald-headed on Monday, you can't have hair down to your butt on Wednesday. And then I, I did see the documentary Good Hair that Chris Rock made. Mm. So that's my background, mm. okay. basically. And so when it came to the, you know, it's it's silly, but it, you know, the metaphors are, are there. You know, you, you need this, you need the hair to get by, but then it's kind of also a curse. Well, and how interesting that they bring in that idea about black superstition and her wanting to reject that, but then her family being like, but this is. This is a part of our culture in our family and our history and whatever. And she, you know, I think mm-hmm. that, I think that's kind of interesting. They're trying to speak to that. I mean, I'm not saying it was flawlessly executed, but I enjoyed it. What I did like, and no spoilers, is how eventually it gets defeated. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, 
Oh, of course. Right. And even I, as someone who knows very little about the trials of black hairstyles, right? I'll say, I was like, oh, yeah. 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 Kind of staring us in the face the whole time. <laughs> yeah. And how about that but, but cast it of characters? It wasn't so simple. It was disappointing or anything like that. Right. It was. It was like. It was just right. Right. No. Totally. I couldn't believe how many people were in that movie. Like how many? Like Vanessa Williams and like I love James Vanderbeek as the bad guy, studio head or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm very glad I watched it. I remember seeing the trailer and being like, "Holy shit! I've never and, seen anything like this." Not only did and this come fun. out after Get Out, but it also came out after. The documentary Horror Noir, right. which had so far in this conversation couched everything we'd been talking about in, in one way or another. So now this is going out past it. Yeah, I would love to hear what they would have had to say about it. And um, who knows where it's going to go from here. I can see at some point there being a follow-up, especially because it was considered a, a success, mm-hmm. a follow-up to the documentary Horror Noir. No, certainly not one that's so all-encompassing, but... I doubt they covered every topic that's in her book, and I doubt they covered every movie that's in her class. Right. So who knows? Maybe we'll get to see some more. Well, and I, I like, I feel like you and I could talk forever, always. But like, I know there's a lot we can't cover right now that maybe we'll branch off into their own episodes or something. But you know, Oscar Micheaux, did you come across his stuff at all? Apparently, this, because of horror noir. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. But apparently, there's a. Um, documentary that came out at Cannes just now about him and his career. Okay. So he's kind of having a bit of a renaissance as far as interest in his work, black filmmaker. Um, in what decade? 30s? He did silent films. Okay. That was how he started. He died in 1951, so yeah, somewhere around there. By the time of his death, he had written six novels and directed 44 films, but around 80% of his 44 films have been lost. At any rate. That's... Um yeah. But also, I wanted to shout out this interesting play on Twilight Zone called Cosmic Slop. Beware of strangers bearing gifts. There may be strings attached. And what might be strange for some may be a noose for others. Let me show you what I mean. Cosmic Slop was an anthology movie, kind of a play on like a, like a Twilight Zone or something. And there were three segments in it, and the one that was I had to watch for my class was a segment called Space Traders, and it's about these aliens who come, they visit Earth, and they're like, give us, I don't know what they said, 30%, maybe all of your black people. Oh, I have seen this. Yeah, and we will leave you alone. Um, and then America has to vote on it. Yeah. But it's not just leave you alone, but like, we'll clean up your oceans. And oh, yeah. They, they turn the Statue of Liberty to gold. That's right. Yeah, it's like, anyway, I recommend that. It's very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Every bargain ain't a bargain. America kinda let the brothers and sisters down. Let me see if I can call them aliens back. I'm gonna tell them we're having a one cent sale. They can get the rest of y'all for a penny. Okay, we've we've been talking for a while, and yes. he- heavens only knows how long this episode's gonna be by the time uh, it gets edited. But it was a long time coming, and. Uh, the, the thing I, I, I think I talked with you about when we first started this was like, don't qualify ourselves. Mm. Don't go into this saying like, I can talk about race because I dated a such and such right. or I took a class yeah. and I got a good grade Yes, in, in that, you know, class yeah. on race or, hey, I've, I've been a fan of this black entertainer for years mm-hmm. or I had a black best friend or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. But 
without giving qualifications, I think I can say that we're both not the most qualified people. No. To to, to well, we care to, to learn, this. but but we we did want to we want to learn hash it out between each other and share our results with the world. But with that in mind, I've composed a list of uh, black run horror, mostly podcasts, that just says. But don't take our word for it. Yeah. You know? Yes. There, there's a lot of perspectives out there besides ours, thank goodness. Yes. Two of which have received the Silver Bolo, and that's the uh, prize given out on the last drive-in, uh, one every every week. Nice. For, like, advancement in, like, horror discussion, usually, or just sort of, you know, keeping the torch burning. Um, not filmmakers themselves, but, like, fans who have created a product. Sure. So, hey, uh, Silver Bolo. <laughs> I guess uh, Darcy mostly, you know, eh, send something our way. Sure. Wouldn't hurt. Anyways, maybe somebody with a bigger output than us yeah. is getting it. But thanks for sticking with us, people, despite our uh, <laughs> many months long gap in between episodes. Anyway, so uh, having received that is Night Light, spelled with a K, Night, a horror movie podcast. Another recipient of the Silver Bowler Award is. YouTube videos and its own website called Real Queen of Horror. Oh, yes. I've watched a lot of her stuff. Yeah, I've watched a few as well. She's Um, fun on Twitter. There's also the Afro Horror Podcast. There is Horror Movies and Beyond, Horror Movie Warriors, Gore Friends, Hmm. Girl That's Scary. I have that on my list. I've listened to them. Homies of Horror. Oh, that's fun. They do an episode on Horror Noir, so I've listened to them and gotten their take. Black Girl Horror, which is a blog. Yes. Scream Queens, exclamation point, which is a podcast. We Die First. I just subscribed to them. And Brother Ghoulish's Tomb. Mm-hmm. Now, Brother Ghoulish's Tomb is a black man, but the majority of these, uh, I just want to point out that the majority of everything I've listed here are black females, or some of them is a, a male and a female. Mm-hmm. Several, I've mentioned, are two black women Mm -hmm. together, Mm -hmm. you know, two-person podcast. And I don't have a conclusion, but I did want to point that out. That is very interesting. Well, I will add to the list another girl-run site called Graveyard Shift Sisters. Okay. I also had Girl That's Scary because I've listened to them. But if you wanted your dose of black men talking about things. Now, this is not a horror podcast, but since you pointed out, you're like, a lot of ladies. It is a film podcast that I really like called Black Men Can't Jump in Hollywood. I've heard of that. And it's three guys. I found them through like a horror episode because oh. I was searching for some, I forget what. But then I was like, oh, their stuff's really fun. So they talk about all kinds of movies, but they don't shy away from horror. Like they make horror is incorporated. So um, I really like them. They're very funny. I think they're all comedians. It's a very lighthearted, very funny podcast. There was one, it's not on my list. It was called like Black Girls Love Horror 2, <laughs> which is very on the nose, mm-hmm. but it only had like two episodes or something. So I didn't include it. Sure. But just to add that to the list of, uh, I would say, women of color yeah, and horror fandom. Yes. And all the creative forces behind horror noir, at least the two most visible to me were women. Totally. So if you're listening to this, go subscribe to some of these podcasts yeah. and YouTube channels. Go absorb and enjoy the content of these incredible black creators. They know way more than we do and yeah, if, got if, great perspectives, you know. If you've gotten to the end of this episode, you should really hear from people besides us Yeah. on this topic. Uh, look, I'm glad we did this, and it's been a long time coming. 
And if you are listening and you have suggestions for movies we didn't mention here or that we should watch. Oh, I've, I've even got notes um, on the whole. Yeah, I mean, we, we obviously we, we didn't cover everything that we researched, but we would love to hear from you as well. You can find us at boysandghouls at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Find us on Facebook, Twitter. We're on all the free corners of the internet. Mm-hmm. Look us up. This is our 83rd episode of you, know, you and I. A nice not round number. <laughs> And uh, we'd like to get out the 84th a lot sooner than it took us to get out this one. Yes, we're already working on it. Yeah. Or at least I am. Yes, you are. And I think you will be probably knee-deep, shoulder-deep in editing this episode for a while, but sure will. I will carry the torch. All right, uh, Kat, uh, to conclude? Beware the moon. Yeah.